Trump's world in sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Bonjour. Bonsoir, Monsieur Mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi amo y Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Shalom. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Namaste. Konnichiwa. What is going on? What is happening? Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today as we talk about what's happening in the world of sports, as I always do, as I always try to do, as I always like to do. I hope that everybody is doing well. I hope that you're being safe. I hope that you're using common sense. I hope that you're doing everything that you need to do to make this world, to make your block, to make your neighborhood, to make everything around you a little bit better. Not a lot better, a little bit better. If you can make it a lot better, go for it. But if you want to put in minimal effort, minimal effort is better than no that no effort. Be a good person. Do the right thing. That's what I'm talking about. And uh, let's see what happens, man. Let's see where this world can take us if we use some knowledge, if we use some understanding, if we use some education, if we use some common sense, if we use some love and understanding and peace to get us to where we need to be. I think that would be a really, really good thing. Today on the podcast, a lot of things. And I'm, I'm recording this near the end of the um, All-Star game. Had enough. I've had enough. No Joel Embiid, no Ben Simmons. Not that they were the tipping point for me to be interested or not interested in the All-Star game. But I wanted to see, just in terms of everybody, the players and such we're talking about, well, this is ridiculous. Why are we being here? Um, my my body's going to be here, but my mind's going to be somewhere else. And it just seemed like there was a lot of negativity. There was just seemed a lot of hemming and hawing about this All-Star game. I, would, I, I was hoping that, you know, the thought of helping out HBCUs, the historically black universities and colleges, will light a fire under these guys to go out and play well. And for the most part, I was um, I was pleasantly surprised. There wasn't any pouting. There wasn't any proclamations of, well, I'm doing this over, you know, under protest, or I really don't want to be here, but, you know, I'd rather be somewhere else. But there were none of that. Those guys came out. They gave a pretty decent effort. They um, They played well, I mean, for what it was, an all-star game. And with the lack of defense, with the lack of crazy shots, it kind of reminded me of an earlier regular season game between the Brooklyn Nets and the Washington Wizards. I mean, the amount of defense that's being played tonight is about the same that was played on that uh, Sunday Sunday night in Washington, D.C. between the Wizards and the Brooklyn Nets. So if you're a Brooklyn Nets fan, if you watch a multitude of Brooklyn Nets games this season, watching this All-Star game should be... No uh, big deal to you. It should be like watching another Brooklyn Nets game. Joking, kidding, sort of. But uh, look like Giannis is going to do his thing. Steph Curry, how about some of the highlights, shall we say? And when I say highlights, I'm talking about feel-good moments or pretty good moments or that was cool moments. The fact that you know, consecutive possessions, you had Steph Curry, you had Chris Paul catching and dunking alley-oops. You had Damian Lillard. Catching and dunking an alley-oop. You had back-to-back half-court shots made. 
uh, with Stephen Curry and Damian Lillard, even though Curry's shot was a little bit inside of the three-point line. It was still it was still tremendous. But Lillard in the second half started jacking up half-court shots. It's like, all right, now we've, we've kind of jumped the shark here a little bit. But uh, still, it's entertainment. They're raising money for HBCUs. They're putting the spotlight on the HBCUs. I love the uh, spot that Chris Paul had in terms of talking about bringing certain uh, classes from uh, traditionally schools like Harvard and such to bring them into HBCUs to um, uplift their profile and those type and those type of things. In the podcast today, I'll talk about the importance of the black community in terms of what's going on in some of the Power Five conferences and some of the Power Five schools, one in particular down south in the Big 12, some of the nonsense, some of the bullshit, some of the um, uh, privileged stuff that those guys are doing and those guys are saying. And it's gotten the light, it's caught the light and the attention of some folks and they brought it up and started talking about it again, rightfully so. But what type of message is going to be received what type of action is going to be taken well we speaking about my community have the opportunity have the power to really do something about it we just don't use it but uh, i'll get into that a little bit later on in the podcast but as i mentioned before very quickly just want to uh go ahead and talk about the all-star game again it was fun Giannis duncan doing a thing a couple of uh, three-pointers banking in you know, Jokic looked like he was having fun. Doncic looked like he was having fun. Steph, though, out of all the guys, looked like that he was just having a ball out there. Now, he missed most of last season because of an injury. He missed the opportunity to play in the All-Star game. And last year with 2020 and everything, was rough. It was rough for everybody, rough for Steph. But um looked like he's coming out. It looked like he's having a great time hitting the shots. He won the Three-point contest. I didn't watch any of the slam dunk contest. Doesn't uh, interest me. Didn't watch any of the skills competition. Really doesn't interest me. Me being a three-point shooter, me in my basketball days being a three-point shooter, took a mild interest in the three-point shot. But for the most part, hey, it was fun. It was ha-ha, hee-hee. And again, everything goes to a good cause. Wendell's World in Sports cause. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. One thing that I was thinking about and the nba has been doing this for years so it's not like they've done something that's 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 new or different but just just the afrocentric way that the nba is all about man i mean that's in a situation where we talk about the lack of black head coaches in the nba and stuff it's like when you watch the NBA and you see how much attention and see how much spotlight they give to HBCUs and, you know, how much they're focused on what's going on in the black community, it makes you stop for a little bit and say, damn, you know, the fact that there's only six or seven black coaches in the NBA, it is kind of surprising. Because with the NBA, it seems like they go out of their way to make sure that they're accentuating and bringing up, you know, things that are going on in the black community. I, I tweeted the fact that, man, if, if you're a racist if you're a bigot, if you're a white nationalist, if you're a MAGA supporter, if you're an intolerant person, you you really, really must hate the NBA. I mean, forget the stuff about three-point shooting and the way the game is being played. Just the way if you're a bigot or a racist or intolerant or narrow-minded or ignorant. You know, if you're if you're that, 
you know, BLM is horrible, blacks get everything they want, they don't work hard enough, they all smoke weed, baggy pants, they shoot each other, it's just like Chicago. I mean, if you're of that ignorant mindset, man, no wonder you don't like the NBA. Because it's just like the whole presentation, and I love it. And I don't love it just because I'm black. I love it because it spotlights and highlights a community, happens to be mine, that needs to be spotlighted and highlighted more. And do they shove it down your throats? Uh, possibly, maybe. But you know what? Hey, it's a good thing. Because what else, as far as our community is being shown out there, that's being shoved down the throats of the multitudes of people. So, hey, you know what? A little shoving down the throat never hurt anybody. Especially if you can, if you can tolerate, if you can accept, if you can learn from... 15% of the stuff that the NBA is feeding you, you'll be a better person. So, like I mentioned before, it's a good day watching the All-Star game. My next podcast, I'm going to get more into the actual NBA, what needs to be done in the second half. Now that the season rolls down, what's going to be going on with the relationship between the NBA and COVID and the vaccine, and what are we going to do about that? What are we going to be doing? What are we going to be talking about in terms of the Los Angeles Lakers? Are they going to be surviving Anthony Davis still being injured? What about the Phoenix Suns and the Utah Jazz? Are they going to continue to be the surprises, I would say, of the Basketball Association with Phoenix and Utah having the top two records in the NBA? Utah being number one, Phoenix being number two. We're going to be talking about uh, Kyle Lowry of the Toronto Raptors. Is he going to stay? Is he going to go? That'll be good. We're going to talk about possibly, or well, not we, I. I'm going to be talking about possibly, you know, Joel Embiid winning the MVP, the first center to win the MVP since Shaq. I would think that he would be in the lead or closer to the lead with LeBron. But you know who's gaining fast? Someone called James Harden. So as does Harden have a real opportunity to capture or be a real threat for the MVP. And I also want to talk about, you have Milwaukee, you have Philadelphia, and you have Brooklyn at the top three seeds in the Eastern Conference. Which team are we talking about here? If we're mentioning Toronto, Miami, or Boston, which one of those teams has the best chance to break up that triumphant between Brooklyn, Philadelphia, in Milwaukee. So all of those things I'll be talking about coming up next. But there's some things I want to get into other than what's going down in the hardwood professionally. So uh, let me go ahead and let me get it started.
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss and get down on today in the world of sports. Namaste. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Konnichiwa. Kepasa. Shalom. What is going on? Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. Recording this on a Sunday night after the NBA All-Star Game is over. Going to be posting this on Monday. Hopefully posting the next podcast after that on a Wednesday and Thursday. Time compromises a little bit this week. I'm going to be up in uh, Mesquite, Mesquite, Nevada, which is about 95 miles north up the road in between St. George and Mawapa Valley. Going to be teaching some kids some uh, math. This should be interesting. School is now back in session in terms of... Uh, being in the classroom, still got to wear a mask and all those type of things, but uh, the extra money that I get from going up there, I've been going up there for a while now, so I'm looking forward to it, very much looking forward and teaching teaching some kids some things, because, you know, after all, I don't know much about history, don't know much biology, don't know much about the science books, don't know much about the French I took, but I do know that I love you. And I know that if you love me too, what a wonderful world it would be, Felisa. So, all of those things I want to be bringing up and uh, meeting the students who I haven't seen and, man, going on a year now. So, it should be interesting. Should be, should be very interesting. I'm going to try to do a mini podcast from a park in Bunkerville that I go to uh, every time I'm up there and I spend the night Always go there just to relax, just to regroup. It's a beautiful part. You go there late at night. There's nobody around. And um, small little Bunkerville. You go there. You, I sit there. I just reflect. I uh, you know, try to center myself. What am I doing? Where am I going? What my life is all about? Those type of things. So I might as well you know, try to go ahead and do a uh, podcast, a little mini podcast uh, from there. So uh, yeah, tomorrow night I will record it. And when I get back into town, I will put it down on my YouTube page. You have a YouTube page? Yes, I have a YouTube page. Wendell's World of Sports, W-E-N-D-E-L-L apostrophe S, World, W-O-R-L-D, and Sports, S-P-O-R-T-S. You check that out. Trying to uh, build the content on that bad boy, just using different platforms to uh, get my point across in terms of um, what I want to speak about in the world of sports. So, yeah, all that good stuff. All right, so here we go. Let me get back to what I wanted to talk about here. Um... College athletics in peril under the spotlight. I'm not going to get into a less miles at Kansas. He's uh, fallen off the radar in terms of overall importance, even though what he did is significant and important. But, uh, you know, in terms of him being a quote unquote big time college football coach, that hadn't happened since he left LSU. So, uh, his deal really not going to get into that. But I read a column written by yahoosports.com writer Shalise Manza Young. And the title of the column she wrote a couple of days ago was Boost, uh, Texas Boosters, Greg McDermott. Texas Boosters, Greg McDermott, and others in college sports are telling us why, who they are. I hope black student athletes listen. I was like, oh, that caught my attention. All right, let me see what this is about. So I started reading it. And basically this past week, some of the things that took place on the campuses of higher learning and athletic programs that are responsible for... <laughs> 
quote-unquote, developing mature boys to responsible, strong, character-educated, productive members of society. You know, you, you go in there to college, and you're surrounded by academia, and you're surrounded by all these smart people, and you're surrounded by people with degrees, and these professors, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you go to a college where you learn how to grow up, and you learn responsibility, and you learn to take care of yourself. And while, yes, individually you do that just by osmosis and just dealing with the everyday, the Adults on this college campus play a huge role, right? And if you're an athlete who's there on a scholarship, be it basketball, football, wrestling, softball, swimming and diving, whatever, you, you look at the coach or the coach in this Pollyanna type of uh, situation that I'm, that I'm bringing forth to you, the coach is supposed to be your, your father figure. He's supposed to be looking out for you. He's supposed to have your best interest in heart. Not in how many points you score. Not how many touchdowns you throw. Not how many times you uh, hit a home run. None of those type of things. We're talking about he's going to make sure that you graduate. He's going to make sure that you uh, learn responsibility. He's going to make sure that when you leave his program, albeit what program that is, that you are going to be a much better person than when you came in. And with the life lessons that was taught by this coach, you are going to then go off into society to be an outstanding father, an outstanding husband, and be a productive member of society and move the society along in the positive. And that's all going to be shaped and molded and learned with this coach on these college campuses, with the help, of course, and not only the coach, but also these wonderful professors and wonderful school administrators who are looking out for your best interest, right? Right? Isn't that right? Right? Isn't that the most important thing, college education? Isn't that the propaganda that everybody throws? That's the stuff that I gobbled up and learned when I was young. Lord have mercy. If you don't have yourself a college degree, whoo, boy, are you in some, you're in a world of trouble, boy, I tell you. And you'll never be able to buy a house. You'll never be able to have a great life. You'll never be able to have any money. You'll never be able to have the success and all the materialistic things that you want because goodness gracious, you didn't go to college, right? Didn't you learn that? Weren't you uh, fed that bullshit, that nonsense? Well, <sighs> As I was reading this column written by Shalise Manza Young, again, Texas Boosters and Greg McDermott and others in college sports are telling us who they are. I hope black student athletes are listening. I was reading the article, very good article, I must add, highly recommended. And uh, they were giving, she was giving some examples of how that is nonsensical, hypocritical bullshit. Uh, some of the examples, the University of Texas athletic boosters are threatening to pull financial donations if the school doesn't make it clear that, quote, eye of, the eye of Texas will be sung by players and fans as per tradition. The school's fight song that has racist origins will be will continue being sung by players and fans as per, per uh, tradition. So. These old, rich, white folks are trying to tell us that you need to go ahead and you need to sing that song. It's in order. I'm telling you this. I'm not asking. I'm not debating. I'm not negotiating. I, Mr. Republican, really rich, white, old man, is telling you that you need to do this. Period. End of discussion. So people might be sitting there saying, well, what's so... Because everybody, you know, there's certain groups on the other side of the tracks across town, on the other side of the street. Not so much in the black community, but we know that the other community, the dominant community, the majority community, they might look at this and go, oh, here we go again, oh, geez. Folks are sitting there talking about what What do we need, what the, what's the cancel culture going to do now? 
All right, what's the um, what's the pansies? What are they upset about now? What are the don't hurt my feeling groupers? What are they concerned about now? What's the woke group concerned about now? What is what do white people do so wrong this time? Where are we at fault now? How are we racist this time? How are we privileged this time? How are we insensitive this time? Come on, black folks, and try to be uh, woke white folks. Tell me what's going on with this? What's what's so What's so horrible about this fight song, Texas, University of Texas, that we have to get rid of it, abolish it over a hundred years of tradition? What's the deal here? Well, if you want to know the background of that song, let me tell you. In 1899, University President William Prather, not Marvin Prather, but William Prather, my boy Marvin Prather, William Prather, in an address to students at the opening of the school year, this is in 1899, Paraphrased words he'd heard Robert E. Lee say while Prather was a student at Washington College in Virginia that really moved him. He said, the eyes of the South are upon you, forward young men and women to the university. The eyes of Texas are upon you. Because back then, Texas didn't have a fight song. So they were playing other people's uh, song. But I'll get to that in a second. So yes, so the president in 1899, William Prather, said he was moved, he was inspired by these words he heard from Robert E. Lee. And those were some of the words or some of the catchphrases that became synonymous with Prather, that you know, became a connecting point from Prather to the students. So the idea and inspiration to write that song, first of all, came from General Lee, who, if you don't know, he was a general of the Confederate Army during the Civil War. And if we know anything about the Civil War, if you ever want to take a look at the history books, if you ever want to watch the uh, History Channel, if you ever want to watch the Revolution and watch anything, Ken Burns, there's many, many documentaries that you can watch to educate yourselves on the Civil War. But just in case that you might have forgotten because you haven't been in a English or you haven't been in a U.S. history class in, say, 10, 5, 40, 50 years, let me go ahead and refresh. General Lee was the... Uh, leader of the Confederate Army during the Civil War. So basically what the South was trying to do during the Civil War was recede from the Union because they felt that they weren't getting enough power or they felt that there was too much power going to the North and it was going to be hurting their economy. Of course, their economy was mainly predicated by the production work of slaves. And the North was moving away toward that, picking cotton and doing all these type of things. The North was a little bit more urban, a lot more urban. The North was coming up with some other things industrial-wise. So what was going to be happening, the South figured, is the fact that, if you know, all of a sudden now, we start getting all of these politicians, and the power starts going up to the North, all of a sudden now, our way of life, our way of making money, which was cotton and all these other things, which again was the backbone for them, which was uh, the work was done by slaves, that that would be... Uh, a situation where the South would crumble and fall under the power of the North. So we definitely can't go ahead and do that. I mean, the North's up there talking about abolishing slavery. Well, we need slavery to exist. So, you know, enslaving black people is a, you know, it's a major thing that we need to do. You know, so they were like, now nah, forget that. We're going to go ahead and do something else and we're going to, to succeed from the Union. So the Confederate flag and everything else. So Lee was the general who was trying to succeed from the Union. So he was a traitor. He was a Benedict Arnold. He was a racist fighting for states who wanted to keep enslaving Africans they stole from their ancestral homelands. 
basically, if you take a look at Trader, and you take a look at who's a bigger trader, Benedict Arnold, or those who fought for the South in the Civil during the Civil War, Benedict Arnold wouldn't even come in 15th place. He's way down the line. Benedict Arnold, if you, again, read the history books and watch the History Channel, you would realize that uh, Benedict Arnold had much greater reason to betray America than General Lee and his constituents and his soldiers did. So at the time, you're speaking about Confederate President Jefferson Davis and presidents during that time, Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan, who who were the ones who kind of led the way toward the Civil War or saw a Civil War was coming and did nothing to stop it. And then after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth, Andrew uh, Johnson was the one who was like, oh, yeah, Reconstruction, eh, screw it. You're talking about Andrew Jackson. All of these presidents before, um, you know, and during the Civil War and, and a little bit after the Civil War, yeah, they were this country's Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin. So basically, if we're talking about it in this country, people like to say, yeah, and rightfully so, you know, we don't use Hitler for anything because of the atrocities and the evilness of who that guy was. But yet still, we still have monuments and we still name things after people like Lee and Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan and Andrew Jackson and Andrew Johnson. Andrew Jackson, you take a look at the $20 bill, you see Andrew Jackson's name there. A guy who basically committed genocide for the Native Americans. Basically, he was a Hitler to Native Americans and to black folks. But yet we still name schools after him. We still have monuments after him. There's still a t his face on the $20 bill. I digress. So basically what I'm saying is if we're speaking about atrocities, if we're speaking about evilness, this country's Adolf Hitler being Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan, Confederate President Jefferson Davis, then basically Robert E. Lee was our Joseph Goebbels, right? And during that time, if Jefferson Davis was equated to Hitler for us, then Robert E. Lee was equated to Joseph Goebbels, if you catch my drift. So the fact that this guy is going to come up here and say, yeah, I was inspired by this guy to go ahead for anything, uh, that's strike one. That's basically a, a no-go right there. That's basically a non-selling point to why this needs to be a fight song for anything related in this country. But then a few years later, a University of Texas student and band member named Lewis Johnson. No, not the, not the reporter Lewis Johnson, but Lewis Johnson and classmate John Sinclair wrote a poem that relied heavily on Prather's Eye of Texas uh, gambit or catchphrase or wording or whatever. And they sent the words to, of all things, the children's song. I've been working on the railroad all the live long days. Does anybody, has anybody sung that, by the way, that way? I've been working on the railroad all the live long days. But basically, they sent it out to uh, that song. So they decided to debut the song at the annual campus minstrel show. In May of 1903, where white students usually performed in blackface. They were the Al Jolsons before Al Jolson. So, there we go. I, I think, based on the history of the song, yeah, maybe not the best of idea to have it as a tradition to be singing. Because if you're singing it, they didn't start singing it at a football game or at an athletic event at the time. They sung it at a minstrel show. Right there... 
cancel right there, no need to go on, right there, no need for an argument on why the song should be changed. But, hey, there have been two other efforts over the past 10 years to go ahead and get rid of that fight song at uh, Texas, neither of which has gained much traction. Again, the song was not sung at a sporting event. It was sung at a minstrel show. Because I know, folks, what people are going to do. They're going to hear to say, well, you know, the fight song needs to be abandoned. The fight song needs to be put down. The fight song needs to be changed. The fight song needs to be abolished because it's racist. So people are going to look at the at the lyrics and they're going to say, I don't see anything racist about this. I don't see the word nigger in there. I don't see coon. I don't see gorilla. I don't see black people or niggers need to be lynched. What's the big deal? What are y'all talking about? Where, show me again where this is supposed to be racist because I don't see anything racist about this. If you're talking about the time when it took place, you know, the time that was written during that time, people were saying that, that racism was a lot more prevalent than it was today. And, you know, okay, maybe, but still, there are, I don't see anything racist about this. Well, for all those who are ignorant enough to think that, again, let me reiterate, the song needs to be abolished, not because of the lyrics so much as the purpose for the song being written and the way it was introduced, where it was introduced. need to come a little bit further in terms of our thinking on why this song needs to be put in mothballs or put in a fire or put somewhere where it can be incinerated and no longer be dealt with. So that's the story. So again, these boosters are saying, well, how dare these football players, these football players, and how dare these athletes go ahead and start taking offense and start making strides and doing all these type of things. And all of a sudden now, these black folks are now starting a new movement for black people to uh, get something that they don't deserve or to get something that white people need to kowtow and bow down once again and give black people something just because they don't want to get their feelings hurt or just because, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not morally or mentally strong enough to deal with it they're taking away our they're taking away our liberties and yet you've heard that right this past year you heard those idiots talk like that they're taking away our liberties they're taking away our freedoms if you give them this what are you gonna what are they gonna ask for next what to go live in our same neighborhoods to take our jobs to marry and impregnate our women heaven sakes alive you start giving these black folks all of this kind of stuff Man, next thing you know, your beautiful, pristine neighborhood and your wonderful top-notch golf club are going to be inundated with with uh, Devontes and Javantes. Do you really want that to happen? Do you really want to be having blasting that, that rap music and all that kind of stuff on those beautiful, leafy, pristine greens that have been in our tradition, that has been in our country club now for hundreds of years? Do you want black folks up there in, you know, infiltrating and living in our same communities? What, you want all of, all of a sudden our neighborhood to smell like weed? All of a sudden now you want 15 people to be living in, our, in, in these houses? You want this rap music to be played? You want your son and daughter to be, in it be, to be mentally, uh, your, your son and daughter to be mentally tricked into wearing baggy pants and cornrows and tattoos all of a sudden now? No, no, uh-uh. We got to start putting our foot down and we start putting our foot down. Now the liberalization of this country has got to stop. 
and it's not going to uh, get in our. It's not going to get in our city. It's not going to infiltrate our state. It might happen in New York City. It might happen right there in California, the bastion of liberalists. But it ain't going to be happening out here in the good old, right in the heart of Texas. And it stops right now. And our state university, in our state capital, Austin, Texas, is now our ways and our traditions are being threatened. And they're being threatened by the liberals. And they're being threatened by BLM. And they're being threatened by these illegals. And they're being threatened by the gays. And they're being, uh, uh, you know, they're being, uh, they're being challenged by these people. And we can't let that happen. We've got to fight back. And we're going to fight back. And we're going to do it with our money. You don't, you don't tell rich white folks, Republican, really rich old white men, what to do. When you've been that, when you're, if you're a multi, multi-millionaire worth hundreds of millions of dollars, if you're a billionaire, when was the last time someone told you what to do? If you're a 77-year-old multi-millionaire or a billionaire in your 70s, when was the last time anybody told you what to do? What, 40, 50 years ago? Or, I'm sorry, maybe outside of your wife? When was the last time one of those guys got told what to do? Especially when it comes to business. 30, 40, 50 years ago? So these guys have been drenched in privilege. These guys have been drenched in power. These guys have been drenched in what I say goes. When I say jump, you say how high. Because guess what? Your livelihood depends on me. I hold your livelihood in my hands. Not just your livelihood. Your kids' uh, livelihood. Your wife's uh, livelihood. They're all in my hands. So again, if you want your house, if you want your mortgage paid, if you want your car note paid, if you want to be able to provide for your wife and children or your husband and children, I suggest when I say jump, you say how high. That's been the uh, that's been the attitude for a lot of these guys. Not all of them, but a lot of them, and it's showing right now with Texas, with this. If you don't stop this right now to the AD, these emails. If you don't stop this, if you don't put a stop to uh, this kind of stuff, we're just going to uh, pull our donations. We're going to start stop contributing to the um, to the athletic department, which is their way of saying we will fire you. So you know, we're in control. We run this university, not you, not the president, nobody else. We do. So it's disgusting. It's privilege. Fuck you to all those assholes who do that. And fuck you to the administration who's letting them do that. You weak, pathetic, no backbone, spine pieces of shit. And really, also, you know who's also to blame for this? The black folks. The black folks in the community, because you allow that shit to happen. I'll get to that in just a second. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Speaking about what's happening in the world of sports as far as collegiate athletics is concerned, and how a wonderful article that was written YahooSports.com. It was written by, let me bring up the name once again. It was written by uh, YahooSports.com. I forgot her name. Yes, uh, Shalice Manza Young. You can check it out. S-H-A-L-I-Z-E, Manza, M-A-N-Z-A Young. Just Google her name like I did. And uh, it was really good. It was really good. And she's speaking about, hey, you know, for black athletes and students, you know, let's kind of be woke. Let's kind of be, you know, keeping an eye on what's going on because your liberties and your ways are being threatened 
And um, she absolutely had it right. And I made the point about the boosters at Texas talking about if you don't if you don't play eye of the the tech the eye of Texas or whatever that bullshit is called, that we will stop um, donating and contributing to the athletic department. Now the story first got you know picked up steam and got people's attention was this past football season after Texas lost to Oklahoma in the Red River Red River rivalry, and they lost to Oklahoma for the third time in a row. So after the game is when these Texas players are supposed to go to the band and they're supposed to sing along with the Eye of Texas, not the Eye of the Tiger, not the thrill of the fight, rising up to the challenge of our rivals, but their old uh, antiquated uh, fight song. So it was noticed that after the game, when this was supposed to be, when this tradition was supposed to be going on, only then Texas quarterback Sam Ellinger stood alone in the, on the field for the playing of the eyes of Texas, the post-game tradition. The other players on the team who were supposed to stay and sing the song with the fans, they left. They were off to the showers. They were off to the locker rooms. So when that was, you know, when that was brought to light, hundreds of alumni and donors were concerned about why Ellinger was alone to sing the song and the rest of the players were like, adios amigos. So they sent emails to University of Texas uh, President Jay Hartzell calling the image of the abandoned quarterback disgusting, embarrassing, and disturbing. You know what's disgusting, embarrassing, and disturbing is the fact that you guys are calling that incident disgusting, embarrassing, and disturbing. Now, Ellinger was like, hey, you know what? I wasn't out there taking part in the deal. I was just kind of lingering around and saying good game and what's up and how you doing to coaches. So it wasn't like I was sitting there going, hey, come on, y'all, I'm here to sing the song. I'm here to do the tradition. Where is everybody? Hip, hip, hooray. Ellinger is from that area. So he grew up, you know, knowing, being educated. But he said that, no, 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 I'm not. What well, That wasn't me. That wasn't me. I wasn't out there singing it. I wasn't out there singing it. So, so uh, after these emails were sent, they demanded that the school stand up to the quote-unquote cancel culture. <laughs> fucking assholes and firmly get behind the song or else donors were going to walk away and then i don't know what jay hartzell did but i'm quite sure he didn't put on the four top song and start singing don't walk away don't walk away not now because i'm inspired so from june to late october over 70 percent of the nearly 300 people who emailed hartzell's office about the eyes demanded the school keep playing it. And around 75% or 75 people in emails threatened to stop supporting the school financially, calling on the university to take a heavier hand with students and athletes they believe were disrespecting university tradition by protesting it. Again, it's amazing the ignorance concerning this uh, situation. I mean, when you're a billionaire, man, when you have enough money and you feel that you have enough power and influence that emailing somebody is really going to make a difference, you ain't dumb. You ain't stupid. Believe me, I've been in sales and customer service. I know what dumb and stupid sounds like. These people aren't dumb. These people aren't stupid. You don't make a billion dollars by being dumb and stupid. It's the ignorance concerning this matter and their blinded privilege, which they have, which they gain through their business acumen or through their financial 
um, for their financial, um, how much money they have, it's for them to sit there and think that they're actually going to be able to get this done. And the, the cowardice and the patheticness, is patheticness a word? Well, I'm just making it up right now. Or basically just the fact that these guys don't have the ability, don't have the backbone, don't have the guts, don't have the temerity to actually stand up to them and be like, well, you know what, fellas? You're not running this athletic program. I am. Guess what, fellas? You're not running this university. I am. Do I email you and tell you about your business? If you don't do this, that, and the other, I'm going to stop shopping at your store. I'm going to stop buying your gas. I'm going to stop um, financially supporting your business. No, no, I don't. So back the fuck up, shut the fuck up, and let me run my university. Back the fuck up, shut the fuck up, get the fuck out of my business, and let me run my athletic department. These guys don't have the guts to do that. And even if they did, I'm quite sure there would be those in bigger, higher positions than they are, board of trustees or whatever, to say that you can't talk to these assholes like that. You're gone. So it's self-preservation. And it's an unwillingness to stand up. And it's an unwillingness to uh, fight for what's right. That leads them to this. But that's our higher... That's our, that's, you know, educa higher education right there. So they complained that Hartzell, these, these donors, they complained that Hartzell was not forcefully defending the song and school traditions enough, accusing him of cowing to political correctness. Yes, goddamn political correctness. Now, of course, if people were walking around um, in Arab garb, that would offend those people. If they were walking around and they were speaking Spanish, they would be offending people. If they were walking around and quoting Allah, that would be offending people. So for them, you know, um, offending people and doing all this type of stuff, the woke and all this kind of stuff, again, it only goes back to what offends you, not what offends the, the uh, totality of society. So the alumni and donors threatened to cancel season tickets and donations and boycott games. See ya! Get the fuck out. If you have that type of an attitude, we don't want you at our fucking games anyway. I would love to see it. And of course, a president and an athletic director, he can't do that. I understand because as soon as he said that, those same fucking racist pieces of shit, non-woke, privileged assholes would sit there and be like, he can't talk to me like that. Fire him this instant. And they would fire him this instant. But it's a shame that basically he can't say that. Okay, look, this is what we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing what's right. We're going to be doing what's right. What's right by the students. What's right by our university. What's right by society. What's right by proper decorum. What's right, period. And if you're too privileged, if you're too blind, if you're too ignorant, if you're too stubborn, if you're too out of touch to realize that, get the fuck out. In fact, let me do this for you. We won't want your donations. We don't want you to buy season tickets. Boycott games. Get the fuck out. Go to UT San Antonio and watch their games. Go to Texas Tech. Go to Texas State. Go somewhere else. We don't give a fuck. Go to Houston. Go to SMU. There's plenty of football that you can watch in Texas. Go to a fucking high school game. Plenty of other places you can go to. And give them your dirty ass money. Get the fuck out of here. That should be the attitude. That should be what they're putting down. But they won't. They won't. It's all about money. 
some of the emails sent. And I'm reading these here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The alumni identified, uh, some of the emails that were sent. Alumni identified, this guy is identified as Myers. He's an alumni from the class of 1984. He wrote, I truly hope that you value diversity of opinion. But if you are similar to today's academia, you will shut down conservative viewpoints and true facts. I do not support UT anymore, even though my family has three generations of graduates, because it has become a bastion of far liberal indoctrination and only teaches one point of view, liberalism. Myers, whoever the fuck you are, first of all, the fact that your family's been UT fans for more than three generations, no one gives a fuck, okay? My family has three generations of graduates. Don't give a fuck. Don't give a, don't give a rat's ass. Now, far if you're really thinking that UT, and I haven't been in any classes, so I don't know, but my guess is the fact that as many people here in Clark County, I've heard through uh, numerous times over the year that it's become a bastion of far liberal indoctrination and only teaches one point of view, liberalism. Yes, I mean, for heaven's sakes alive, my goodness gracious, they're being indoctrinated. Our kids are being indoctrinated with Loving each other regardless of skin color, race, gender, sexual orientation. Oh my goodness gracious, we can't have that. Standing up for your rights, standing up for what's right. Oh my goodness, we can't deal with that. Hell no. Loving each other, judging people not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Oh no, 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 no. We can't have that indoctrination of those liberal point of views. Oh my goodness gracious, no. No, don't you see what they're doing? This is all part of their plan. Again, this is this is what the black people are promoting to the white people. <gasps> My goodness gracious. Again, next thing you want to know is that they'll be wanting to get more welfare checks. Or they'll be wanting to get more money for their welfare checks. Because, you know, those black people, they don't work. All they do is smoke joints and hang on the street corner and sell drugs and drink liquor all day. And then, oh my goodness, you'll send those type of people, you'll send them to our neighborhoods, and you'll send them to our schools, and you'll send them to our country clubs, and you'll send them to our churches, and you'll send them to our restaurants, and you'll send them into our environment. And then that plague will then start to affect your children. And then your children might start all of a sudden smoking weed instead of going to school, speaking the bonics. Oh my goodness gracious, we can't have that. So we have to stop this bastion of liberal indoctrination before it comes too far. We have to stop it right now. <laughs> so this fuck you, man, who sent this email. Sorry, but it is clear at UT that the white male is totally screwed unless you are woke. Oh, yes. Again, let me, who is this fucking asshole? Oh, my goodness gracious. Yes, Myers. As a black man, I feel for white people. I, for the white male, I feel for you guys. I don't know how you make it during the day. I don't know how you, I don't know how you make it day by day with all of the discrimination and all of the oppression that you poor guys go through. Man, it must be rough. I, I am so glad that I'm black because you know, the black folks are so privileged. I am, whew, thank goodness. Man, I don't know how you guys do it. I don't know how you guys make it through the day. I mean, I mean, tell me what it's like when you're pulled over and stopped and frisked and have your, and have your rights violated because of the color of your skin. It must be tough. And going through the justice system, boy, I tell you, I would hate to be white. You guys have just got it bad. 
You guys have got it real bad. I I really feel sorry for you. It must it must be tough. It really must be. Fucking idiots. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Speaking about what's happening in Texas, at least two people argued that because the black student population at UT Austin is small, their voices should not outweigh the larger wishes of the alumni base. Well, of course. What Larry Wilkerson, a donor who graduated in 1970, well, you know, he's he's basically, you know, up on the up and up of what's going on today with the movement. What he uh, wrote, again, a graduate of 1970, Mr. Wilkerson, he said, less than 6% of our current student body is black. They can't, the tail cannot weigh, the tail cannot be allowed to wag the dog. And the dog must instead stand up for what is right. Nothing forces those students to attend UC Austin. Encourage them to select an alternative school now. So basically, look, if you don't like the fact that you're being discriminated, if you don't like the fact that there's elements of racism that we're not going to change, if you don't like that, go somewhere else. Because we're not changing because there's not enough of you to give a damn about. Sure. Sure, that makes sense. And here's comments made by the new coach, Steve Sarkeesian, former offensive coordinator for Alabama, coached at uh, Washington for a little bit, offensive coordinator, I believe, a few years with the Atlanta Falcons when he was hired in January. And I'm quite sure because Tom Herman was a guy who was like, look, I respect the players who do not uh, want to stay and sing the song. So he left it up to those guys, whether he wanted to participate in that bullshit tradition. So... And the fact that he didn't win enough games, Tom Herman is no longer the coach. So when Steve Sarkeesian got the job, I'm quite sure in the interview, it didn't take long for the boosters in the alumni or in the alumni who really run that program to ask him about what's your thoughts and feelings about the fight song and are you going to do anything in terms of uh, having the students or having these your student athletes um, make a choice on whether they want to participate in the tradition or not. And I'm quite sure Steve Sarkeesian, who saw the opportunity at Texas, who saw how much money he could make at Texas and saw the glamour and saw the um, saw those type of things in terms of being uh, the uh, football coach at that school, was like, sure, I have no problem there. <laughs> yeah, those guys are going to sing the song. Mm-hmm, yeah. As long as you give me that job and that contract I'm asking for, sure. Yeah, I'll have those guys sing the song. And that's what he said. And as much, he said that I know this much. The eyes of Texas and our school song, we're going to sing that song. We're going to sing that proudly. Um, You know, Steve, that's, uh, that's something that uh, I'm going to say might come up in terms of, yeah, no, we're not. <laughs> the students... The student body, the leaders, the most important players on your team are just going to get together and say, yeah, coach, yeah, we're not we're not going to do that. Or I'm not going to do that. So, I mean, you know, um, sorry, not not happening. So, that, that's what's going on. And again, I mentioned before, we can sit there, like myself, and I can yell and scream and insult and throw insults at these uh, jackasses, these donors, these um, privileged, old, very rich white Republican donors who spend a bunch of money, spend in excess of millions of dollars to fund the university and fund the athletic department. It's easy for me to sit there and say, fuck you, we're not going to be doing this, go suck a dick. I, I can do all those type of things. 
But but guess what? You know who's going to make the response? And, and folks can march and they can protest and they can do all those things. You know who's going to be re responsible for having things change in that situation despite the threats of these people talking about they're going to pull our donations, which has caused the university and the powers that be to sit back and go, well, we're not going to do anything. We're going to try to slide this underneath the rug and not let anybody, you know, you know who's going to make that change? You know who's going to be able to really turn the tide? It's going to be black folks. And it's going to be the black community, not the white community. The white community ain't going to change this. The black community is. And let me explain to you why. Because as long as black athletes continue to go to these schools, nothing will change. And if there are these guys, why should they change? Why should they have a different attitude? Because you're going to sing this song proudly. We're going to tell you what we do. And as soon as these black athletes who go there, especially for football, because that's the most important thing when we're speaking about the athletic program at the University of Texas. Yeah, baseball is important. Yeah, basketball is somewhat important, but the quote-unquote, the tail that wags the dog is the football program. In football, they are relying heavily on black folks, the uh, black kids, to uh, go to these schools. The four- and five-star black football players to go to this school so they can go ahead and beat Oklahoma, so they can win championships, so they can be the kings of the Big 12, so they can compete in the college football championship and win championships. Something that they haven't done speaking about playing a relevant football game, i.e. the college football semifinals or the college football championship game. So these black football players, these black recruits hold the key to how prominent to how relevant the football program is going to be. So knowing this, realizing this, there should be good enough or there should be a decent amount of black people, black football players and their parents and their guardians that when they're being recruited by Texas, they say, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. Because while your facilities are awesome, your campus is beautiful, and I'm quite sure the females walking around there are otherworldly, really can't be dealing with this bullshit about the eyes of Texas. Going to go a little bit somewhere, going to go somewhere else, going to go to a school that, you know, is a little bit more aware of what's going on in terms of diversity, equality, and opportunity for all. So, see you later. So instead, I'll be going to Oklahoma, or I'll be going to Clemson, or I'll be going to Alabama, or I'll be going to Ohio State, or I'll be going to Miami, or I'll be going to Florida State, or I'll be going to Penn State. See you later. Or shit, maybe I'll go down to Lubbock, or maybe I'll go to Stillwater. See ya. Then all of a sudden, Texas, not only did they start losing to Oklahoma every year like they've been doing, all of a sudden now, they start losing to Texas Tech. All of a sudden now, they start losing to Oklahoma State. All of a sudden now, heaven forbid, they start losing to, oh, I already said Texas Tech. So they start losing to those type of squads, which would really be unthinkable, which would really be unheard of. Texas recruiting class in the last 10 season, they've had six top 10 recruiting classes. Three of those recruiting classes were top three. The majority of those players were black. If they start losing those players over this situation, and Texas football program becomes irrelevant, 
guess all of a sudden, and that's going to be the reason why, because of the, basically because of the donors controlling the program and the alumni, these out of touch, privileged, old, rich white guys, all of a sudden putting down the law saying you can't do this, you can't do that, and we control you, we control you, we own you, and you do what we say. And that becomes a problem. And guess what? Two things are going to happen. Either those donors are going to realize that they're hurting the program and back off a little bit, go back into the shadows, and begrudgingly accept the changes that are going to be happening to the university, i.e. get rid of that school fight song. Or B, they're going to continue to be who they are because they're stubborn and they're privileged and no one has told them no and they know everything and their egos and their hubris toward what's happening is going to cloud their common sense and Texas will continue to remain irrelevant. And Steve Sarkeesian won't have a job and nobody else will want that job because it's toxic because they can't get enough players. They'll be the southern version of Notre Dame. So what's it going to be in terms of in terms of success? You know how you know the Fighting Irish and all those type of things. This ain't Newt Rotney's Fighting Irish. This ain't Era Persegian's Fighting Irish. This ain't Lou Holtz Fighting Irish, where they had elite the uh, where they had the elite football squad for decades. You know Texas is going to fall. You see what Notre Dame is today. They're not Alabama. They're not Ohio State. They're not Clemson. They're not any of those guys. That's going to be Texas. So Texas is going to. It's going to it's already there already, but they're going to even drop a couple of notches shorter. Black folks have, or lower, black folks have that opportunity to do that. But will they? Are they? The willingness to do that. Why can't those guys instead go to an HBCU school? There's plenty of HBC schools around that uh, region of the country. You've got the SWAC conference, for heaven's sakes. If you don't like the fact that you're being dictated what to do by racial terms, by old, rich, white, Republican, white guys who think that they own you once you get on this campus? Why don't you tell those guys to go fuck themselves and go to Alabama A&M or Alabama State or Grambling or Jackson State, Mississippi Valley State, Prairie View A&M, Southern, Tennessee State, University of Arkansas Pine Bluff. Go there! Go there! Well, you know, you won't make it in the NFL. Bullshit! Bullshit! If you're good enough to make the NFL, they don't give a fuck where you play. And the last time I checked, there's been plenty of players, a lot of those in the Hall of Fame, who have played at HBCU schools. Arguably the greatest football player who's ever played the game came from an HBCU school, speaking about Jerry uh, Rice. One of the greatest running backs in NFL history and top players in NFL history played at an HBCU school. I'm speaking about Walter Payton. A guy who made a boatload of money and enjoyed a fabulous NFL career. Recently went to a HBCU school. God rest his soul. Um, Steve McNair. Plenty of situations. I think there's 20 or 30 players currently in the NFL from HBCU schools. So don't give me some fucking bullshit. Speaking about my community, don't give me some bullshit that you're willing to tolerate the nonsense, the degradation, the disrespect, the disenfranchisement of going to a school like Texas, who obviously don't give a damn about you, or enough people don't give a damn about you, don't be talking about, well, yeah, we'll go ahead and endure that because I want to get my son into the NFL as soon as possible. And okay, I, I, I get it. I understand it. If you take a look at the facilities at Texas compared to some of the HBCU schools and the SWAC conference, you're right. No comparison. 
No doubt about it. Game over. It's a route. Not even in the same stratosphere. Get it. Understand it. But damn, don't tell me that your child, that your son, if he has NFL potential, if he has NFL talent, couldn't make it in the league if he went to Alabama A&M or Alabama State or Grambling. Don't tell me that bullshit because it's bullshit. And if you do tell me that, you're ignorant. Sorry, you're ignorant. The only way that you can get into the NFL if you go to a school like Texas, so I'm willing to let my son go through that bullshit that's going through right now instead of going to a HBCU school where A, they actually give a damn about you. B, you'll be around a lot more attractive women. C, if you want to go to a big-time school and chase after those girls, you can go ahead and do that anyway. And D, if you're good enough, you'll be in the NFL. There's been plenty of examples. So don't don't give me that. That's a cop-out. That's nonsense. And I'm speaking about my community right now. I'm, speaking, I'm, I'm talking about the black community. Don't, don't give me that bullshit. Don't give me that nonsense. And if you do, I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear you. If you're talking about racism and this, that, and the other in Texas and the University of Texas and it's horrible and things need to change, shut the fuck up. Because you're still going to be contributing to it by sending your son there who happens to be a five-star athlete. So I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear Don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear you. Go ahead and complain about something else. Don't complain about this. Complain about there's not enough police presence in your neighborhood. Complain about there's too many drugs in your neighborhood. Complain about something else. Because you've got nothing to stand on if you're going to sit there and whine and moan and complain about what's happening at Texas and the school fight song and the fact that these administrators are willing to uh, be dictated by out-of-touch, privileged, old, rich, white, Republican, white guys to allow such racist things as this and then at the one time and then send your son to that school. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear you. Just be honest. Just say, yeah, you know what? Fuck it. <laughs> we want to make the NFL. I'm tired of where I'm, I'm tired of living where I'm living. I'm tired of my uh, financial income. My son is going to be a guy who in two or three years is going to be able to buy me a house on the rich side of town. He's going to be able to buy me a nice car. And he's going to be able to take care of his brothers and his sisters and his other family members. So if we have to go through the bullshit of Texas for three years at the University of Texas, we're willing and able to do it. Unbeknownst to them, the same thing could happen in terms of, you know what? You go ahead, you go to one of these HBCU schools. If you're so concerned with your child about being put in an environment like that, and you really want him to reach his potential, not only as a football player, but also as a man coming into the league because you feel that he's good enough to make the NFL, that he has the talent to make the NFL, send him to Alabama State. And the same thing, I, I guarantee you the same thing will happen. Guarantee you. Guarantee you. But that's all on us. That's all on us. So change will happen when something like that. And the only thing that's more powerful than a donor's money are wins and losses. Wins and losses. Believe you me. Just take a look back at 1970. When Alabama was, no, 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 we're not going to uh, integrate. We don't need to integrate. Alabama's been all white. The football team's been all white. Bear Bryant's been winning um, national championships. We don't need to integrate. We don't need to integrate. Governor George Wallace, right? Segregation now, segregation forever, right? Well, guess what? At the beginning of the 1970 season, USC, University of Southern California and Sam Cunningham, went down to good old Alabama. 
And in front of an all-white crowd there at Alabama, Sam Cunningham rushed for 135 yards on 12 carries and scored two touchdowns as USC beat the shit out of Alabama 42-21. to And that was a time when Alabama wasn't winning championships. That's when they were at the low ebb of the Paul Brer, Paul uh, Bryant era of winning championships. And Sam Cunningham went down there, black man, and tore them up. And it was kind of like, oh, we need one of those. In fact, we need a couple of those. In fact, we need a lot more of those. Jerry Claiborne, this is perfect. Jerry Claiborne, a former Bryant assistant and head coach. He coached at uh, Virginia Tech, Maryland, Kentucky. After the game, he was quoted as saying, Sam Cunningham did more to integrate Alabama in 60 minutes than Martin Luther King did in 20 years. Sad, pathetic, true. (laughs) Or somewhat true. So it's up to us. It's up to us. My community is up to you guys. It's up to me and you and everybody else. Again, if you're fine with this, then I don't want to hear anything about we need to get rid of the... uh, fight song and all this kind of stuff. If you're fine, if you don't think that's a big deal or whatever, and you don't mind the status quo of Texas, and you feel good about sending your son to uh, help uh, to help for the uh, pleasurement of old, rich, Republican white guys for their pleasure, and you don't mind being dictated on some of the things they can and can't do, and if you don't mind uh, you know, being the entertainment piece for those guys and for a coach who won't stand up for you, as it's as uh, Steve Sarkeesian said, they're going to sing it. They're going to sing it proudly. So if you don't mind, why should I mind? It's not my son who's going down there. It's not my child who's going to be dealing with that bullshit. So again, if you want changes, you're going to have to make the changes. And when I'm saying that we, I want to say about people making changes. I'm speaking about the black community in this situation. We need to make those changes. those world in sports i'm your host wendell wallace so glad that you could be with us a lot of things you discussed today in the world of sports speaking about inspired these next two segments or this past segment and this segment inspired about a fantastic article that i read a column that i read yahoosports.com got me pumped up got me fired up so was talking about the situation at texas and how they're trying to get rid of the fight song and how donors are going to, and alumni are talking about canceling their season tickets and ending their donations and stop to, uh, and stopping to uh, fund the program and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just like, you know what, man, it's up to us. It's up to black folks. If everything wants to be changed, the eye of the tiger song or the, the eyes of Texas or some nonsense like that, 
with racist origins if folks really want that change if black folks really want that change and if black folks really want and if the university really wants these uh, these old rich republican white guys these billionaires and millionaires to leave them alone to leave them alone then we know what we have to do and we know what we should do but the question is are we going to do it that's the question my uh, answer is probably no because the black community, just like every other community, is no different. We think about ourselves first, second, third, fourth, and fifth. And then maybe ninth or tenth, way down the line, we talk about and we think about the community and what's best for them. But this is not a slight, this is not a put down on the black community. It's no different than any other community. It's not like we are, uh, you know, like everybody else is so worried about other people and we're the only ones thinking about ourselves. No, I don't give a damn what we, we we're human beings so i don't give a damn what you do we're gonna be thinking about what's good for me myself and i first second and third the majority of people there's some that'll think about others first but i mean that's the reason why we have a martin luther king day that's the reason why we um celebrate and that's the reason why we hold in such high regard people like marcus garvey and booker t washington and malcolm x and those who fought for the rights and the freedoms and the qualities of others because we know that we're not doing it so uh you know if we were martin luther king and we were in his position now we're not going to go ahead and do what he did we're not going to be giving up our life for the betterment of others we're going to go ahead and we're going to become the president of a prestigious black uh, uh university or college or we could be the head deacon of uh, the most powerful church in alabama like martin luther king had the opportunity to do we're not going to go ahead and give up our lives so um, black folks can have freedom and equality. Do it your own self. So black folks are no different. It's it's t- it, it would be tough to turn down a situation like Texas and say, you know what, we're going to go ahead and go to another institution or maybe go to an HBCU school. It would be would be a little bit difficult, but you know. It is what it is, human beings being human beings. And when it comes to greed and when it comes to looking out for each other and not looking out for each other and looking out for ourselves first, second, third, and fourth, black folks are no different than white folks. A little little behind the curtain there. So when you hear black folks talking about, man, we need to look out for each other and we look out for each other and we do, yeah, right, whatever. You're looking out for yourself first, third, and worried about the brother man, the other man, eighth, ninth, and tenth. Just like everybody else on this planet. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Another situation. Greg McDermott. He is the head coach of Creighton. Very good basketball program. Moved up to the Big East. Oh, I forgot where they were from originally. But they moved up to the Big East and they've done well. And Greg McDermott has done well as a coach. He's been suspended indefinitely by the university. On Thursday after he coached in a Wednesday loss to Villanova. Team that's probably going to be, I don't know, with the loss of uh, Colin Gillespie and their other guy, I don't know exactly what they, we'll see what happened in the uh, Big East tournament to see exactly where they're going to end up. But Villanova is a very good team. So he was suspended. Assistant coach Alvin Huss was named the interim coach for the Butler game, which was yesterday. The Butler did it. So McDermott twice used the term, what's the reason why he was uh, suspended indefinitely? Well, McDermott used the term plantation. What year are we in? He used the term plantation as part of an ugly, uh, an analogy urging team unity. McDermott told the players after the loss at Xavier on February 27th, 
using a term evocative of slavery in the antebellum south if you don't know he said quote i need everybody to stay on the plantation i can't have anybody leave the plantation why <laughs> why look i speak for a living and i've done this for a while and i've said some really stupid things so you know I, i'm not going to sit here and just you know call this guy the worst human being in the world and you know, he's horrible and all this kind of stuff. And he's an idiot and all this kind of stuff. Because I've said plenty of really stupid things also. Uh, um, you know, during my lifetime and during my career as a broadcaster. But Plantation? Where did that come from? <laughs> what exactly What exactly was all that about? Supposedly, this was the first time he had used that phrase when addressing his players. I, 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 what? I don't know. I don't know. Were you watching a TV show? Were you watching a special? Where did If this was the first time you used that phrase or uttered that word, where did you get it from? It had to be something recent. I mean, it wasn't something where, yeah, you know, when I was in seventh grade and we were uh, in the, uh, when I was in uh, history class, uh, Mr. Perkins was going over slavery and he used the word plantation and it just stuck in my mind. So 40 years later in this situation, it just came out. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Interesting. Interesting. So Creighton Athletic Director Bruce Rasmussen said additional sanctions were under consideration, none of which would be made public. So before the game on Saturday against Butler, five Creighton players of color explained in a short pregame video why they were hurt by Coach McDermott, Greg McDermott's remark. And the video ended in silence with all the Creighton players locked arm in arm on the court. Afterwards, Lift every voice and sing. Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven rings. Ring with the harmonies of liberties. Let our rejoicing rise. That was sung after the um, after the video had ended. That's also known as the Black National Anthem. Lift every voice and sing. You should know that, but educating you once again. Neither team was on the court for the national anthem. Oh, there they go. There they go. There they go. BLM. BLM. I blame BLM. Can't be out there. Oh, they're going to be the black national anthem, but they can't do anything for the national anthem. All those ingrates, all that liberalism, all that AOC, all of that Sharpton. Oh, my goodness gracious. We are speaking Omaha, Nebraska. Neither team, again, was on the court for the National Anthem. Uh, guard Marcus Zigorowski, very fine player, said that uh, after the game that even though McDermott made a mistake his, with his choice of words, he loves and support all of his players. Zigorowski comes from a mixed background. So, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to go there. So what he said was a lot of guys in, the lo- a lot of guys in that locker room were hurting from it speaking about the plantation phrase and I was hurting from what he said at the same time coach Mack has been a huge mentor for me and I know he would take a bullet for me and everybody in that locker room including the coaching staff I know he made a really bad mistake with what he said only I know everything he's done for me as a player but more important as a human being he loves me he loves everybody in that locker room that's my coach I love that dude people make mistakes that's my guy I'm going to take Zigorowski's thoughts and opinions. I don't know Greg McDermott. 
never met him, never never I had an opportunity to uh, sit with him, so I don't I don't know. I don't know exactly characters or anything like that. I don't know anything about Coach McDermott, so I'm going to go to the players. I'm also going to uh, see if there was any other instances. Like, has he used something like this before in terms of any type of um, phrases or quotes or, or anything like that? So what should happen to him? Look, words have consequences. He needs to be suspended. He shouldn't be fired. He shouldn't be fired at all. Again, if everything comes out clean, I mean, I've this was the first incident of him saying something like this. Shouldn't be fired. Shouldn't be fired at all. Should he be suspended? Absolutely. I would suspend him throughout the uh, Big East tournament. That's what I do. But again, he should not be fired. And maybe during that time, first of all, he needs to, I mean, I would like to hear from the um, players, the black players. I would like to hear from their parents, what they thought about this. And I would like to hear any of his colleagues or anybody who knows him well or anybody to come out and say, hey, look, you know, I know Coach Schmack and, you know, I, he's done this and he's done that and never in my time has he ever said this or never in my time has he said anything that, you know, kind of got me side-eyed, like, what, what did you just say or anything? Talk to any former players. Have there been any instances like this before? And if there hasn't, then no, nothing should happen to him. He, what he said was terrible. What he said was ridiculous. What he said was bad. What he said was just completely, you know, but... Was it fireable? No. This was the first time. Now, if this had been a pattern of him saying shit like this, well, then, yeah, we need to kind of, you know, have a different kind of conversation. But no, there hadn't been any situations or there hadn't been any reports of him abusing players. There hadn't been any reports of him, uh, you know, doing what Dave Rice did. There hadn't been any Will Wade situations. I mean, from what I know, I don't know. I don't know. He runs a relatively clean program for what, top flight college basketball programs are all about. I'm quite sure there's a little bit of hanky-panky. I'm quite sure there's a little bit of bending the rules going on there, but I mean, he ain't Will Wade. He's not Greg Marshall. He's not uh, He's not doing any of those things. He's not sleeping with co-eds. He's not uh, getting drunk and getting a, in a car. From what we know, from what we, uh, from what I know of. So if this is the thing in terms of should he or shouldn't he keep his job? Again, if his players vouch for him, if the parents vouch for him, if his colleagues vouch for him, if the community vouches for him, and I'm speaking about my community in Omaha vouch for him, then sure, he should not. He shouldn't be fired. Now, if he did, I wouldn't be sitting up there screaming bloody murder. I would disagree with it, but you know, you, you put yourself in that situation. Things happen, and McDermott, even if he did get fired, he's a good enough coach with a clean enough record to where he would get another job. So I, I, if he got fired for it, I would disagree, but I wouldn't be, you know, sitting up there talking about how horrible it is. In fact, McDermott offered to resign if the players asked him to after he made racially insensitive remarks in a recent locker room speech. Fact in an interview on 620 The Zone's unsportsmanlike conduct, what he said was, "This is their team." In regards to him talking about, you know, if they would have asked me, asked me to resign, I wouldn't have put up a stink. He said that quote, "This is their team. If they would have chosen to have me uh, walk away, I would have walked away." But that's not what they wanted. I believe him. I believe him. 
And I don't think him coming out is a uh, publicity stunt or, or anything like that. Um, I think it would be wise for him to maybe get in contact with uh, the Black Coaches Association and have a little conversation and, and make sure the Black Association, uh, Black Coaches Association doesn't, you know, browbeat him or, you know, uh, welcome him with open arms in terms of, okay, we'll hear your side of the story, you know. And hopefully the Black College Association or Alliance will look into Coach McDermott and give their point of view in terms of either, hey, you know, after doing a little bit more digging, we've found that, uh, you know, this ain't the first time he's done something like this or this ain't the first time that he's gone down that path. Or they can look and say, hey, you know, after, you know, putting some phone calls in and doing a little background check and doing a little extra work, we found out that uh, he's a good guy who made a mistake. He's going to pay for this mistake, but uh, that's about it. And I think moving forward, if that's going to be the case, this shouldn't be held over him. Like, you know, you remember back there in February of 2021, remember when you made that plantation remark? Mm -hmm. I mean, it shouldn't shouldn't be like that. He made the mistake. And uh, let's see what he does to move on. And if he's sincere, if he's a good man, I'm going to go on the assumption that he is because of of what the players say about him, then uh, I think... Fences can be mended. And and, and, and again, I, I haven't heard anybody come out and say what a horrible human being he is and what a, you know, what a racist or what a white privileged piece of shit and that he is. So, I mean, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to roll with that. But again, remember for the black folks who are sitting up there yelling and screaming that he's a racist and he needs to be fired. And this is, uh, and this, you know, this is horrible. And this is the worst thing ever and for those who are saying that. If you're living in a glass house, don't be throwing those stones. That's all I'm saying. Because, again, I'm coming from the viewpoint of, you know, if I'm, if if I had to be held in the same standards as these guys who are yelling and screaming that Coach McDermott needs to be fired and he's a racist and he's a privileged white guy who's out of touch and what he said was just too horrible for words and it's unbelievable that he have to keep a job, and this is the problem with uh, colleges and universities that they put winning games and making money over the rights and the privileges and the um, and the health and the concerns of the students. If y'all are going to base all of that on what Coach McDermott said, uh-huh, no, no, because if that was the situation, I would have been out of the broadcasting business. I've been in this almost 20 years. I would have been out of the broadcasting business about, I don't know, 17 years ago. When I made a couple of comments on air, which they weren't the smartest. I'm not going to rehash, but uh, they weren't the smartest. And I had to say, oops, my bad. What I said was dumb, but I didn't lose my job because my heart was in the right place. So, and I'm I'm, I'm not going to go there. And of course, for on the other end of the spectrum, for people who are too stupid and ignorant to realize, well, what he said was no big deal. Again, could you please fucking do some homework and could you please educate yourself? please. You know, for those who once again talk about my community, oh, we're too soft, we want everything, this, that, and the other, y'all are the same stupid motherfuckers who are yelling and screaming about people wearing masks and the election was uh, rigged. So I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear your stupidity. Really don't. And I like that new standard that we're having, that no, you can't get away with saying shit like this and then saying, oops, my bad, and then just go on like nothing had happened. Like, like, you know, nothing ever happened. So, good deal. But, again, I think that he should be suspended 
for the entirety of the Big East tournament. But then after that, we uh, cleaned the slate. We put this incident behind us. And for Coach McDermott and Creighton and the basketball team, we move forward. Wonder Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. I'm recording this again on a Sunday evening after the All-Star Game. It's going to be published. You'll be able to take a look at it, listen to it, whatever, on a Monday. Tomorrow is going to be March the 8th, the year 2021. So this is an important date. Or speaking about on March 8th, this is an important date. It's the 50th anniversary of the fight of the century. Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier. Now, you could say it's the birth of the rope of dope. If you take a look at the uh, fight, you can see it on YouTube. You can see it on many other places that Ali started to do the rope of dope around eight. But I want to say something because they keep calling this the fight of the century. It is not the fight of the century. It was one of the fights of the century. But to say it was the fight of the century would be doing a disservice and a disrespect to the two before them, quote-unquote, fight of the centuries. The real fight of the century, without question, was July 4th, 1910, the, in the Reno, Nevada, between Jim Jeffries and Jack Johnson. That was the true fight of the century. The second biggest fight of the century, in terms of events in boxing, was Joe Lewis versus Max Schmeling, June 22nd, 1938. Those two bouts. Look it up, kids. Look it up, millennials. Learn something. History. Those two were the fight of the century. There would be no fight of the century March 8th, 1971 between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier if it wasn't for, especially if it wasn't for the first fight of the century, which was Jim Jeffries versus Jack Johnson in Reno, Nevada, July 4th, 1910. There wouldn't have been a Muhammad Ali if there wasn't a Jack Johnson. There wouldn't have been a civil rights movement if it wasn't Jack Johnson. There wouldn't have been a Jackie Robinson if it wasn't for a Jack Johnson. There wouldn't have been a Joe Lewis if it wasn't for a Jack Johnson. What Jack Johnson did in winning the heavyweight championship and what Jack Johnson did being regarded as one of the greatest fighters, the greatest heavyweights of all time. That set the foundation. That set the growth. That set the journey for people like a Joe Lewis, people like a Jesse Owens, just people like a Jackie Robinson, people like a Larry Doby, people like a Bill Russell, and then ultimately people like a Muhammad Ali and people like a Joe Frazier, uh, so on and so forth. So those two things. And of course, without... Muhammad Ali, there wouldn't have been a Michael Jordan. There wouldn't have been a Magic Johnson. There wouldn't have been a LeBron James. There wouldn't have been a Barack Obama. There wouldn't have been any of those things. The influence and the power 
of Muhammad Ali. So all of those things kind of, kind of coincide together. So the real fight of the century, 1910. The other fight of the century, July, or excuse me, June 22nd, 1938, between Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling at Yankee Stadium. But without question, right there, right up there, is this fight March 8th, 1971, between Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali. And you could even make an argument that even more important with that than that fight was February 25th, a podcast that I did a year ago commemorating that date. February 25th, 1964, Muhammad Ali versus Sonny Liston, the birth of who we know today as Muhammad Ali in terms of his importance, his influence on the world today. So those are some of the... No, no other sport, if you really think about it, has the most... You know, visible historical dates in terms of its events are concerned. We can speak about the miracle on lice, and we can speak about, I'm quite sure, there's in other countries plenty of cricket and football type of um, um, games that have led to uh, the improvement that have learned, that have uh, started the uh, a movement in terms of making that society a better place to be in, in its present day. Here in the racist, ignorant, selfish, divided states of America, you're speaking about those instances, mainly it's boxing. Boxing has always been at the forefront in terms of social change, moving the needle, having an impact on people more than any other sport that there is, more than baseball, more than basketball, more than football as such. So when we're speaking about March 8th, and we're speaking about 1971, and we're speaking about Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier, it was monumentous because... You're speaking about Muhammad Ali, the situation that he went through in terms of being exiled from his sport for three and a half years because his refusement to enter into the uh, draft, into the uh, United States uh, draft uh, to go over to Vietnam. No Viet Cong ever called me nigger. That was something that he was fed to, uh, Ali. He was fed to when he was Cassius Clay by one of the members of that cult known as the Nation of Islam. Um, but basically, he took the stand. Interesting that the Nation of Islam didn't back him up, but when you're dealing with a cult, when you're dealing with a bunch of thugs, when you're dealing with a phony organization, uh, a criminal organization like those clowns were, no surprise, no surprise, those people who killed Malcolm X. But, um, yeah, he forfeited, took a stand, and refused to enter the draft. Because of that, he was stripped of his title. Because of that, of his outspokenness about not just the war in Vietnam and 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 that situation, but also some of the adverse conditions and situations facing black Americans in this country, that um, he became a very polarizing figure, not just in this country, but all over the world for his stances that he took. The fact that he did become a Muslim and um, the fact that he became the heavyweight champion of the world when he uh, stopped Sonny Liston in 1964. So all of those things played into that stew, which was brewing. When he gave up the championship, when he was stripped of his title in 1967, a tournament was held to which Joe Frazier came in and he won the tournament to become the heavyweight champion of the world. Joe Frazier, at the time, a guy who was the Olympic champion in 1968, won the gold medal, came through the ranks, won the, I think it was, a, I think it was 1964, Frazier won. 64, 68, I know he was an Olympic champion, but um, he won the championship. Well, the traditional thought was, well, I mean, yeah, oh, yeah Frazier won the heavyweight belt. Frazier is the heavyweight champion, 
But we all know who the real heavyweight champion is. Muhammad Ali didn't lose his championship because he lost to somebody. Ali lost it because the government stripped him of the title for uh, his uh, refusal to uh, play ball, for his refusal to be a house Negro, for his refusal to just shut up and box, for his refusal to be a good boy and do what this government tells them to do. So he was being persecuted for his rights and for his beliefs. And he took a stand. He showed strength. He showed conviction and those type of things. So because of that, he was stripped of his title, which, of course, gained a strong following, gained a strong um, uh, following amongst people who thought that this was wrong, the injustice. And, of course, um, being part of the civil rights conversation, maybe maybe not right in a mix of the civil rights movement, but having a part in that for what he was doing and how he was speaking out, of course, the younger generation, of course, black people gravitated him for, for that. And of course, the cause that he was fighting made him a global icon by the time he re- decided to return to the ring three and a half years later to resume his boxing career when the government uh, overturned his um, conviction. So because of that, that was the setting for the fight to undefeated heavyweights, supposedly in their prime. Frazier was in his prime. Ali was past his prime. He hadn't fought in three and a half years. A lot of the speed and quickness, if you wanted to see Ali at his best, if you wanted to see Ali at his absolute apex, go ahead and YouTube his fight against Cleveland Williams. I believe it was 1966, 67, somewhere around there, but it was held in the Houston Astrodome. That night, Muhammad Ali, man, I don't know if he was the greatest heavyweight of all time on that night, because we're speaking about different errors and different everything, but man, the performance that he put on that night was one of the greatest in heavyweight boxing history. That performance that he put on against Cleveland Williams might have been one of the best performances ever put on in boxing history, period, for the performance that he had. So at 25 years of age, when Ali was doing the thing against Cleveland Williams, that's when he was at his absolute apex. He never reached that um, that that type of uh, uh, that that type of performance again. You could say that he was in the zone, if you could uh, use that analogy. If he was a basketball player, he was a guy who would have scored 56 points, dropped off 15 dimes, and would have collected 18 rebounds and shot 82 percent from the field and 100 percent from the free throw line in about 32 minutes. I mean, he was that type of awesome. He would have been 44 for 47 for 585 yards and six touchdowns if he was a football player playing the quarterback position. If you're speaking about being in a zone, that's what Muhammad Ali that night was when he fought Cleveland Williams. So, yeah, you can talk about the rumble in the jungle. Yeah, you can talk about the thriller in Manila. Yeah, you can talk about this fights against, well, never looked good against Ken Norton. That was an awkward uh, fighting style that Norton represented. But in terms of all his legendary fights, the best performance that he ever gave, even the two fights against Sonny Liston, of course, Sonny took a dive in the second fight in 1965 in Lewiston, Maine. But the performances that Ali gave, his best without question was his fight against Cleveland Williams. Even better than Ernie Terrell, even better than Floyd uh, Patterson, Better than all those guys, Zora Foley, all those guys. So after three and a half years, Ali comes back. He fights Jerry Corey, who was an excellent heavyweight at the time. Then he goes ahead and fights Oscar Benavida in in reason because he wanted to get his body and his mind right because Benavida fought a similar type of style to Joe Frazier. 
So he knew that he would be fighting Joe Frazier soon, so he wanted to get accustomed to that style of fight. Again, he had been off for three and a half years. He really hadn't fought anybody of the style of uh, Frazier. So the closest thing to that was Benavida. But Benavida was extremely tough. From Argentina, very, very tough uh, heavyweight. Championship level type of fighter. And after coming off of a three and a half year hiatus, his first two fights back in short amount of time were Jerry Quarry, a top flight heavyweight, and then Oscar Benavida, a top flight heavyweight, then going ahead and fighting uh, the best of the best, the best of the bunch at that time, Joe Frazier. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So that was, <clears throat> that was the background. That was the storyline heading into the contest March 9th, 1971. Who would have won this fight? Ali labeled Joe Frazier, the white man's champ, the Archie Bunker, the Richard Nixon, um, you know, basically he they labeled him that guy. And Uncle Tom, he was a sellout. Anybody knows any type of background or any type of information or just want to look plat, look past all of the nonsense that Ali was spewing when he was talking about Frazier being the white man's champ and everything like that. But Frazier was one of the last of the uh, fighters to actually call him Ali. He called him Cassius Clay, mainly to get under his skin. He wasn't uh, really, you know, gung-ho in terms of, you know, being outspoken in terms of, uh, you know, supporting Ali. He did support him, but not in a not in a very vocal way. I mean, Joe Frazier was a guy who was just interested in becoming the best boxer. Joe Frazier wasn't interested in becoming a martyr. Joe Frazier wasn't interested in becoming Jackie Robinson. Joe Frazier wasn't interested in putting the weight of our, my community on his shoulders. He wasn't interested in being a freedom, freedom fighter. He wasn't interested in doing any of that stuff. Lack of education and everything wasn't wasn't there. Wasn't interested. That doesn't make him a sellout. That doesn't make him an Uncle Tom. That doesn't make him anything like that. It just makes him to say, you know what, I kind of know my role here in, in 19, late 1960s and early 1970s. Me knocking the fuck out of white people is good enough to uh, help the cause in terms of black folks trying to get to where they were. So we didn't need for Joe Frazier to be an Ali type. We didn't need for him to be a Jim Brown type. We didn't need for him to be a Jackie Robinson type. We didn't need for him to be all those type of things. Just doing what he was doing what was good enough for his part and trying to help the cause. But Ali took advantage of that, took advantage of some of the thoughts and opinions that Fraser had, last one they call him Cassius Clay and those type of things, and he used that as promotion. He used that to say that I'm the people's champion and Joe Frazier is the white man's champion. So here comes this loud, bombastic, opinionated Nation of Islam guy, and that the Nation of Islam, you know, white people are all devils, and Michael Max was still a polarizing figure at the time, even though it had been three or four or five years past his death, and you equated Muhammad Ali with the Black Panthers, and you equated Ali with violence. You equated Ali with overtaking. You, If, um, if uh, Ali was around today doing what he was doing just to... Uh, just to equate, it would be something in terms of Ali being um, with Antifa. He'd be, he'd be switching between Antifa and Black Lives Matter, that type of thing. If you want to talk about the uneducated, if you want to talk about the ignorant, if you want to talk about the stupid of those who feel that, uh, not Antifa, but if you feel that BLM is some type of uh, terrorist group, a Marxist group, or um, that if you're, if you're that stupid, if you're that ignorant in the subject to believe that, then yeah, I guess you could equate BLM with uh, 
Muhammad Ali during that time. I'm not going to equate BLM, Black Lives Matter movement, with the Nation of Islam because one is a worthy movement. The other group is a bunch of thuggish cult uh, uh, members, speaking of the Nation of Islam. So I'm not going to even bring Black Lives Matter down to Nation of Islam uh, type of uh, type of level. But that's what Muhammad Ali was all about. So Muhammad, of course, he had the he had the fandom. He had the loyalty and the cheers for from the black community and from the uh, younger generation and from, you know, the beatniks and from the hippies and from those folks. The f- love is free and wonderful type of deals. He had he had that movement. Meanwhile, Frazier had the corporate movement. Frazier had the rich white Republican billionaire type of movement. Um, Frazier had the uh, cheers and the applause and the approvement of racists and ignorance and those type of folks. Not to say that, again, Joe Frazier was a white man, black man, or anything like that, but you're speaking about racists and you're speaking about ignorance of those folks from the white side. They were not cheering Joe Frazier because, yeah, he's our guy and this, that, and the other. They just needed someone to beat up Muhammad Ali because they hated what Muhammad Ali stood for, his strength, his power, his conviction, and his intelligence. So they needed someone to uh, shut the Louisville lip. And so Joe Frazier was going to be their guy. They probably would have wished, not probably, they would have wished it could have been a white man, but if we have to take Joe Frazier, hell, we have to take Joe Frazier. So that was the situation going into that fight. And you're speaking about nations. You're speaking about people all over the world stopping what they're doing. There were civil wars happening in Ireland and other places places in the world where they called a ceasefire. A ceasefire for one day so they could watch the Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali heavyweight championship fight. Madison Square Garden, that's where it was. The Mecca during that time. So it was it was it was more than just a boxing event. When you're speaking about what what, what makes a great event, what, what makes a historical event, it's history. It's history. The heavyweight fight was more than just a guy winning a championship belt. It was something to where it was going to shape society. When Joe Lewis beat Max Schmeling back in 1938, it had social repercussions. When Jack Johnson beat Jim Jeffries, it had social repercussions. It changed society for the better. Whoever was going to win at the time, Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, whoever was going to win that fight 50 years ago tomorrow probably would have been having a, you know, it would have signified, okay, which one was right and which one was wrong. It might sound ridiculous now, but back then, that's what it was. Who was right? Was it the conservative, rich, ignorant, white, um, bigoted uh, group of people? Were they right about who was which way this country was supposed to go? That was that was the symbol of Joe Frazier, or was the freedom and liberty and love each other and peace and all that kind of stuff, which Muhammad Ali represented, were they going to be right? And it was just a matter of whoever won that fight, that was the direction society was, was going to take. So if you're with Muhammad and you go into the fight and Muhammad loses, well then... Maybe I guess what we were wrong and society is going to go back to the way that you didn't want it to be. 
if you were for Jay, Joe Frazier in Frazier Lost, then you're thinking to yourself, oh my God, the hippies and the Negroes and the Black Panthers and all those type of, Jerry Rubin and those guys, geez, oh flipping Christ. We're going to have to deal with that shit? Holy mackerel. So it was one of those situations heading into the fight for that monumentous uh, historical event. And it was a great fight. It was an awesome fight. But again, it took... The bigger picture was more impactful than the fight itself. And, you know, we move on years, decades later. Joe and Muhammad, I'm quite sure they're up in heaven fighting right now. Even though, you know, since they're in their spiritual being, it's quite sure... I don't know exactly how that how that works. Because A, I'm not dead yet, thank God. And B, I mean, you know, you, you hurt the physical... Someone gets punched in the face, the aerobics, good shape, and all the things. I mean, if, you, if you're not in physical form anymore and you're just in spiritual form, you can fight forever, right? Because there is no physical limitations because you're no longer in a physical being. So, hell, Frazier, the moment that Ali died, Frazier could have been waiting at the pearly gates and saying, come on, ding, ding, let's go. And they could be around 5,064. And those guys are still fighting like at the first two minutes of the fight. Because, again, there's no physical being there. So where are they going to hit? They don't have a stomach. They don't have a jaw. They don't, what, what exactly are they doing up there? What shape exactly are they in? Interesting. And Jack Johnson is sitting on the sidelines saying, when can I get a turn? And Rocky Marciano's up there talking about, I want to try that. And Sonny Liston is like, hey, there, Muhammad, we still have some things that we need to uh, work out on here. Even though the life of Sonny Liston, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if he's in heaven or, you know. But you know what I'm talking about. I mean, Jack, Jack Dempsey is trying to get his turn. Jim Jeffries is up there trying to, does Jim Jeffries still want a rematch with uh, uh, Jack Johnson? Those are the questions that are being answered up there in the Heavenly Boxing Association. Can't wait. Why well, can't wait? But it's going to be interesting when I get up there to see exactly what's going on. Joe Schmeling, Joe Schmeling, Joe Lewis, Max Schmeling. How are those guys getting along? Ezra Charles, Sugar Ray Robinson. Woo, man. There's going to be a super fight every fucking night up there, man. I, t I tell you, it's going to be unbelievable. But that's the whole deal concerning Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, 1971. And look, man, I, I, I think that the main purpose for Ali, and I think where society and the black community failed, really failed Joe Frazier, and in turn failed Muhammad Ali, was we never we never said, hey, Muhammad, we love you, or this, that, and the other, but hey, man, you know, you know, calling, calling a man a monkey, and calling him a gorilla, and calling him a sellout, and calling him the white man's champ, you know, I feel a little bit uncomfortable with that. I really do. Nobody from our community said anything. Nobody. I mean, what Frazier had to go through, what Ali put him through, and then we're going to sit up here and talk about, oh, you know, Frazier, you need to let it go, and this, that, and the other. You shouldn't hate Muhammad so much. And when Muhammad suffered Parkinson's, I mean, there was a time where Joe Frazier took pleasure in that, and that's wrong. And everything. Let me tell you something, man. If I was Joe Frazier and I was subjugated to that type of abuse for as many years as he did, and then Muhammad Ali is celebrated, and I'm living downtown Philadelphia, upstairs in a room above a gym? How am I not bitter? How am I not angry? How am I not sitting here, you know, applauding Muhammad Ali? 
I came minutes. I came seconds. I came one round in the winning two out of three fights against Muhammad Ali. And how would that have changed history? And I think more than anything, I think Frazier wanted to win. And I think Frazier wanted to win badly because of the stuff that Muhammad said about him. But I also think Muhammad wanted to win because he knew that if he wanted to go down as the person that ultimately he went down as, one of the most powerful people in the 20th century, one of the most um, uh, uh, public persons in the, in the 20th century, the legacy and all those things, he knew he had to beat Joe Frazier. He knew all of this stuff about, I'm the greatest of all time, and this, that, and the other, and he had people counting on him, and he was a hero, and he was this, and he was all that. I think Ali knew that if he didn't beat Joe Frazier, oh, that was bullshit. Because you can't sit up there and talk about you're the greatest when you lose two out of three fights to somebody. You can talk about, you know, I was persecuted and they stripped me and um, took me away of my prime and all those. You can say all those type of things, but the record don't lie. People are still talking about Rocky Marciano beating Joe Lewis, even though Joe Lewis was years past his prime and Rocky was reaching his. Doesn't matter. We always say Rocky Marciano beat Joe Lewis. We don't worry about the backstory. So, even with someone as great as Muhammad Ali, even the stuff that he went through, if he would have lost that thriller in Manila against Frazier, if he would have lost that second fight a few years later after the fight of the century to Frazier, all of the stuff that we're talking about Muhammad Ali now, the impact that Muhammad Ali has would be would be mitigated greatly. Because Frazier would have been like, no, I'm the one who beat you two other three times. And that impact that Mo- that Muhammad had would have been uh, muted greatly. So I think Muhammad was going to do everything humanly possible. Every chance, every situation that he could get to have himself get an edge, Muhammad was going to do. And if that was to call him a gorilla, if that was to do all those type of things, if that was to humiliate them, humiliate them, that's exactly what he, what he was going to do. And no one in society... No one from our community said, hey, Muhammad, hey, I mean, win or lose. You're still our guy. You're still our champ. There ain't no way you shouldn't be doing that. Or, you know what, Muhammad, you're starting to really turn us off. So win or lose, the shit that you did with Frazier, we're done. We're done. Ali, born Cassius Clay, was born in Louisville, Kentucky, in a uh, lower-income neighborhood. Joe Frazier was born in Beaufort, South Carolina. There ain't no, there are very few places on this earth during that time when you're speaking about discrimination, oppression, disenfranchisement, everything, second-class citizenship. Nothing would spell that more from when Joe Frazier was growing up being born in Beaufort, South Carolina. There is no white man's champion. There is no white black man situation when you're being born in Beaufort, South Carolina. Frazier went through bullshit. Frazier went through oppression. Frazier went through discrimination. Frazier went through racism that Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, would never even dreamed of being in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'm not saying Louisville, Kentucky was the bastion for, for unity. Quite sure Muhammad faced a whole lot of that shit also, of course. Time, space, place, of course. But shit, man, I'm quite sure. It's, all, it's another different world from the bullshit that those two guys had to face one living lower middle class in 
Louisville, Kentucky than, say, a guy who was born in Buford, Mississippi, or Buford, uh, South Carolina. So if anybody was sitting there talking about, you know, I'm the black people's champion and this, that, and the other, Frazier should have been like, shit, let me tell you about growing up in Buford, South Carolina before I moved up to uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Joe Frazier's story was miraculous. It was heroic for what he did. So it's, you know, it's, it's a shame that society in our community, again, didn't pay the proper respect for Joe Frazier, not just as a fighter, but as a man, and, and, and give him that respect. And even after we knew better, we still didn't treat Frazier with the respect that he deserved. So it's almost a tragic story between those two, because basically those two beat each other to death. They beat each other into uh, to a place to where you say, was it really worth it? For Bahamut, I mean, the totality of, I guess, maybe a um, preordained situation uh, for him to get Parkinson's disease, the fights that he had, the life that he lived. It wasn't like if he never fought Frazier three times that Muhammad would still be living and he would be up and running and this, that, and the other. I mean, I'm quite sure he had a precondition or there was something in his family genes or his heredity that that uh, had him susceptible to be able to get Parkinson's and being in the fight game didn't help. Fighting Sonny Liston twice didn't help. Fighting Ken Norton three times didn't help. The amount of punishment that he put on his body didn't help. The hours and the rounds of sparring that he did to get ready for fights didn't help. Fighting Larry Holmes didn't help. Fighting Trevor Burbick didn't help. Fighting Leon Spinks, God rest his soul, twice didn't help. So to say that Frazier was the main reason why Muhammad faced the physical uh, ailments that he had later on in his life, I'm not going to put that on him, but you know, it's a, it's a tragic story in, in that regard. And again, for Frazier to basically be disrespected like he was uh, for the deification of Muhammad Ali, I don't know. Something that was always like kind of turning off for me, but today, celebrate. Take some time. The fight of the century for that time. March 8th, today, 50 years ago, Madison Square Garden, two champions, not just as fighters, not just as athletes, but as people, legend, and world icons. Joe Frazier. And Muhammad Ali. If you smell what the rock is cooking. Center of the ring, flatliner to Mace, 
Albert, oh, no, 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 last he was just a punish the miss. It's raining down punishment. This is an all-out barrage from Bobby Lashley. Lashley has been envisioning this all night long. Lashley got to be thinking hard. Oh, 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 and there it is. Hard lock. The hard lock. It has cinched in. Center of the ring. Nowhere to go. It's it's tapping tapping the reign of the almighty is upon us. Just like that. Here is your winner by submission. And the new WWE champion, Bobby Lashley. Dominance. Absolute dominance. This is a man who has preached week by week. There is not a superstar alive who can beat me. Well, it is now the era of the Almighty here on Monday Night Raw. Oh, yeah, Bobby Ashley's, Ashley's not done with the Miz. No, he is not. And once again, the headlock. The headlock on Miz. Right now, Lassie just wants to miss, make the Miz pay. Make you feel the pain, the torture. They're making Lashley wait. And this is about making the world see the destruction which he will run on any who oppose him. We know it's going to be one of the most important nights in the history of Monday Night Raw. And it ends with a new WWE Champion, Bobby Lashley. Ah, uh, there we go. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I want to thank the WWE. That was courtesy of the WWE. That was last Monday's Monday Night Raw. With the winner and new WWE World Champion, Bobby Lashley. Special dedication going to the new WWE Champion, Bobby Lashley, becoming the fifth black man in WWF slash WWE history to win the championship. Now, the first person to win the heavyweight championship of Colaire was a black, but uh, of, uh, uh, was Ron Simmons when he won the WCW belt in October of 1992 over Vader. I know that he won it in a different organization, but since the WWE, Vince McMahon took over the WCW, they're officially saying that Ron Simmons was the first black champion in heavyweight history when he beat Leon, a.k.a. Vader, in this match right here. Vader now in control. Going for a waistlock. And Vader's got him up. Oh, went over his back. Got agility by Simmons. And Simmons, he got him in a power slam. He got him in a power slam. He got, he got it. Simmons got it. Simmons has won the match. Simmons is a champion. Simmons has won the world title. Ladies and gentlemen, the winner and new WCW World Heavyweight Champion, Ron Realize his dream to become the best in the world, and indeed he is now on top of the mountain. Again, courtesy of the WWE, thank you very much. The call was made by the legendary great Jim Ross. What a call! What a call! What a call! Gordon Soley for some might be the best ever. Jim Ross for me, man. Good old JR. What a call! What a call! So that was the first time a black man won a a wrestling championship belt. The second one 
was Booker T five times, five times, five times. He was the second heavyweight champion. I guess you could say the first. You know, they say Mark Henry, but Mark Henry, didn't he win his championship belt on uh, when they were trying to do ECW with Tony Atlas coming back? Yeah, that's fine and everything. But for me, while I'm giving mad respect for Mark Henry for what he did and for what the WWE put him through, the creative, uh, the creative writer that McMahon put him through with some really disgusting, terrible ankles. Like he was having a love affair with uh, the great Mula when she was like 90 years old and showed vignettes of them in bed together. It was like, geez. So they put Mark Henry through a whole lot of shit. So his introduction, him being put in the WWE was well, uh, well deserved, even though it was an argument that possibly he didn't live up to all the all the expectations that McMahon had for him when he came in to the company as the quote-unquote world's strongest man. And Henry himself was one who said, look, you know what? When I first got in there, I didn't take it as seriously as I should. So, you know, some of that shit that happened to me was because of my attitude. I brought a lot of that on myself. But, you know, I think Henry had a great run. Mark Henry, especially near the end of his career, when he was the monster heel, I think he did an awesome job. The promo he gave in the ring with John Cena when he was talking about, I'm going to retire, and this is the end, and this, that, and the other, and it fooled everybody. The crowd was like, oh, this, that, and the other, Mark Henry, and Cena was like, oh, this, that, and the other, you know, Mark Henry, and then Henry clotheslined him, and beat up Cena, and it was like, gotcha! That was a great promo. That was probably the best promo that Mark Henry ever had, but Tony Atlas finally started to turn his career around when he became uh, his manager in ECW, and, uh, yeah, so Mark Henry... Um, deserved to uh, be in the WWE Hall of Fame, and I recognized him as being a champion in the WWE, but for my time in terms of when I was at my most feverish pitch of being a wrestling fan was, again, the uh, Ron Simmons winning the championship belt in 1992, and, of course, Booker T beating Rey Mysterio to win the WWE, then WWF, championship belt in 1994 of course with the help of Chavo Guerrero and uh basically they uh basically they uh it was King Booker at the time and it was like yeah wouldn't it have been better for Booker T to uh win the championship belt after off of someone a little bit of a higher stature than Rey Mysterio maybe it would have been nice if it would have, well, Shawn Michaels wasn't wrestling at the time, but, you know, if he would have won off of Bret Hart, I think Bret Hart might have been in EC, uh, WCW, but I'm thinking someone of much of a little higher regard, but, you know, Ray, beating Ray was uh, cool, but um, this is how it went down, the audio of Booker T winning the championship. There's no referee! Hey, what? That's Hit right. Kick. That kick. wasn't a mistake. Wait, 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 wait. Kick, kick, kick. Let me go. Go for the cover. Mysterio's that cold. Come on. Ray is that cold. The referee's Come back on. in the ring. Oh my God, no. On, Somebody stop this. this injustice. Come on. Somebody stop this. Come on. We're doing Not like Play this. The world. Not like Come this. On. Come on. My God.
I could have told you all along, you cannot trust a Guerrero. Again, courtesy of the WWE. And as JBL said, you can't trust a Guerrero. <laughs> God bless and rest in peace to the greatest Eddie Guerrero. So, yeah, so that was Booker T winning the championship belt. The continue, uh, Of course, well, most people, when we think about, you know, black man championship belt, winning the championship, this, that, and the other, you got to go with one of my uh, favorite um, wrestlers of all time, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, when he became the corporate champion in 1998 over Mick Foley, the classic. I guess they did parts and bits of the reenactment of the Montreal screw job. If you remember that deal when Hart, Bret Hart was the champion at that time and he didn't want to drop the belt in Canada, even though he had signed a 10-year, $30 million contract or a 9-year, $27 million contract with the WCW and he was going to be going. And McMahon was like, well, if you're leaving, you know, you, you can't go to the other company wearing our belt, you know, with your with our belt around your waist. So you need to drop the belt here in Montreal. And Hart was like, well, I can't do that because this is my home country and they love me up here. And I really fucking hate Shawn Michaels. So is there any other way that we can do this? I'm really not comfortable. In fact, me being the champion and what you've meant and what I've meant to you guys, I'm kind of calling a uh, audible here. I'm not dropping the belt up here in Montreal. I'll do what you need to do in terms of, I don't know, write a, write a storyline tomorrow on Raw, but I'm not dropping the belt here in Canada. So McMahon was like, all right. Now, the key is, is that he didn't say, look, you're dropping the belt. Fuck you. And if you don't drop the belt, then we're going to do this, that, and the other, and this, that, and the other. But you will drop the belt tonight. I'm Vincent Kennedy McMahon. I run this fucking company. You are my employee for one more night, for one more pay-per-view. And this is how it's going to be done. But instead of doing that, McMahon kind of went behind the back and colluded with Shawn Michaels allegedly about this is what's going to be done. So when the fight was going on and Michaels put Hart and the sharpshooter, McMahon rang the bell. McMahon, who was on commentary that night, this was before he became, quote-unquote, Mr. McMahon. In fact, this was the uh, germation of him becoming Mr. McMahon. He uh, rang the bell, told the guy to ring, ring the bell. And it was like, yeah, and your winner and new champion, Brett Michaels, I mean, uh, Shawn Michaels. And uh, Hart was like, you motherfucking son of a bitch. <laughs> I mean, Earl Hebner took off. Shawn Michaels was like, let's get the belt and run because um, Bret Hart was on a rampage. He was looking for someone. He was like, if you saw Wrestling with Shadows, the documentary about that whole deal or about Bret Hart and stuff years and years ago, even before Owen died, this documentary came out. It was uh, Bret Hart was ready to whoop Vince McMahon some ass, spit on him and punched him right in the fucking jaw and concussed him and everything. Didn't catch it on camera, but the camera caught McMahon coming out of Hart's dressing room wobbly as he was walking down the uh, walking down the uh, the aisle. So it was uh, it was crazy. So that had always been infamous in terms of the Montreal screw job. So for this fight or for this program that they had for the first time, Dwayne Johnson The Rock becoming the champion back in 1998 over Mick Foley, they put in bits and pieces of the Montreal screw job and once again, you know, all the whole thing went down and 
Vince McMahon became Mr. McMahon and all that kind of stuff and, you know, kind of solidified him with that. And uh, this is what it sounded like. Oh, sharpshooter. There's a sharpshooter. Sharpshooter. Hey, McMahon said ring the bell. Wait a minute. What? You smell what the rock is are just as pathetic and gullible as mankind. Fans don't want to believe it. I congratulate you, Rock, and Shane. Shane, Academy Award performance. All right, Rock. Vince, just like last Sunday on Heat, when The Rock said he'd rather be the people's ass than to ever kiss yours. Well, tonight, it's time for each and every single piece of Trailer Park Trash to kiss the rocks if you smell what the rock is cooking. Poor Mick Foley. Dan, what the hell is going on around here? Well, Mick, you don't get it, right? Well, get this, okay? Oh, from behind! Get this, and now look at a rock stomping away at mankind after the war. A rock and the McMahon family, Shane and Vince, in collusion, and here comes, yeah, the rock bottom, and the poor, sad son of a gun, Mick Foley. Ladies and gentlemen, the McMahon family is proud to present your new World Wrestling Federation Champion, the corporate champion, I give you The Rock! You smell what The Rock is cooking? Yeah, and it stinks. Wow. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> the Rock. Unbelievable. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Talking about... Bobby Lashley, eventually getting to Bobby Lashley being the fifth black man in WWE, WWF history to win the heavyweight strap. He beat the living hell out of the Miz. And give it up for uh, the Miz for uh, willing to take that beat down. It's like, hey, man, you know, I don't mind losing my title. But, damn, you're going to have me go out like that? Jeez. <laughs> I mean, I get it. He's trying to build Lashley at this monster heel to start the build-up between him and Drew McIntyre for WrestleMania. I get all that. I understand all that. But damn, man, what are you going to do? You just obliterated my character in terms of what am I going to do after this? 
I mean, yeah, I've been relegated as a joke, you know, with the money in the bank and everything. And I knew that my reign at the champion was going to be short. But y'all aren't going to take me out like that. You're going to do me work in Kofi. Speaking of Kofi, the next man, one of the most fabulous runs, very short run from um, contender to champion during the WrestleMania season was Kofi Kingston, him winning the championship at WrestleMania in 2019 over Daniel Bryan. This was a situation where, again, not many people were sitting there talking about Kofi Kingston needs to be a champion. This was something that was organic. This was something where, you know, the fans demanded that Kingston win the championship. Everybody got behind it. I mean, you always have something like that concerning these runs to WrestleMania where the best laid plans go for naught. I remember when Daniel Bryan won his championship. This was supposed to be a situation where Dave Batista was supposed to come back and win the championship. But the fans were like, fuck no. We want Daniel Bryan, the leader of the Yes Movement, to uh, win the championship. I remember when Dave Batista, when he was with Evolution, and he finally broke away. And going into his WrestleMania event with Triple H, that people were cheering loudly for Dave Batista, and that was... Uh, something that wasn't uh, suspected. Ben Chris Benoit, that three-way match that he had against Triple H and Shawn Michaels, that was something to where that run during WrestleMania was something that wasn't planned because, you know, it was something that happened quickly and organically, people getting behind Benoit. So every year, it just seems that the best laid plans go for not, not every year, but almost every year. So this year, Edge is going to be fighting um, Roman Reigns, I think the better build-up, or I think the better fight, most definitely, could be Lashley and Drew McIntyre. Number one, Edge is 47 years old, so exactly how many matches is he going to be in before WrestleMania? I know that right now, Roman Reigns is doing a program with Daniel Bryan, which is going to end at Fastlane, the next pay-per-view. So how much of a chance are these guys going to have to tete-a-tete in terms of Edge and Roman Reigns to uh, bring up their program when you have the situation where for the next, I don't know, what, WrestleMania is, what, less than a month or something like that? You can now have that buildup between McIntyre and Bobby Lashley, which is going to be great. And the foregone conclusion was always that, you know, once McIntyre dropped the belt, that, you know, McIntyre would have probably gotten his WrestleMania moment in front of a crowd or in front of something. If you remember last season when he won, or last year, where he won the championship strap from Brock Lesnar. I mean, he did that in a pandemic, so there weren't anybody here. So it kind of took away his WrestleMania moment when the when you win the championship or you defend your championship or whatever, and the fireworks go off and you have the big hoop to do at the end of the uh, program. Well, McIntyre didn't get that. So it's a situation where, you know, he can go ahead and have that WrestleMania moment now. now Excuse me. Now, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure if that's going to be happening because Lashley, I guess they're going to position him as a heel. Lashley is starting to get that, uh, you know, you deserve it. You should have it. We want you as our champ type of buzz. And while McIntyre has been great as the champ and what has been a woeful, which has been a horrendous, which has been an unwatchable Raw for a while, some of the gems in that sea of turd known as WWE, where they had The Fiend and them 
That Fiend and Randy Orton bullshit is absolute nonsense and they're wasting the beautiful Alexa Bliss and the women division is trash and Jeff Hardy and Elias, I don't know where they're going and Retribution has been an absolute joke. I mean, Raw has been beyond unwatchable now for a while. I mean, the only thing is is that sometimes I'll have Raw in the background when I'm doing work and when I see the Hurt Business, uh, the Shane, uh, Keith Lee... Drew McIntyre, those guys put on a pretty good program. But for the most part, the only thing that's getting me interested in watching Raw, or the only segments that are getting in, getting me interested in watching Raw are the Hurt Business, Lashley, who's part of the Hurt Business, and uh, Drew McIntyre. Those are the only people worth listening. Those are the only people worth watching. The program with Matt Riddle is a fucking joke. Uh, as I mentioned before, I don't know what's going on with the women's division. I'm watching... Um, Watching Sheena Baszler and Nia Jax has just been beyond unwatchable. Just bad stuff. Bad programming, bad acting, bad wrestling, bad storylines, bad everything. Bad everything. The only saving grace, AJ Styles and Omas. I mean, how they're using Omas or Oman or whatever the fuck his name is. Like, eh, you know, whatever. I mean, AJ has been all right. AJ Styles, I don't think can ever be. I mean, you would really have to work to put AJ Styles in a bad uh, program or for him to be in a bad situation right now. So, but he hasn't been overwhelming. But again, the, the Fiend and the uh, the whole Fiend of Randy Orton has just been so beyond ridiculous, has been so beyond just awful that it's just mostly turned me off to everything else except, as I mentioned before. Whatever Drew McIntyre is doing and whatever the Hurt Business is doing. So it'll be interesting to see moving forward for WrestleMania exactly what they do. I mean, after the after the long stretch that Bobby Lashley had, all the bad angles this guy has been in, the, the, the Lana angle where that was just that was just awful. Awful, 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 awful. You know, him and Lana and poor Rusev. It's just, it was awful. Awful. <laughs> it's just really bad. So, Lashley had been put into some real shitty programs that have been misused. I'm glad to see him, thanks to MVP, getting this push and finally tapping into the potential that he showed. He always had the body. He's never going to be great on the mic. That's what MVP is for. So, if he could be this monstrous heel, I mean, they already set him, they already set him up pretty well by him destroying Braun Strowman a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, McIntyre, who is a big physical guy, it'll be interesting. Both guys can wrestle. Both guys are uh, going to put on a good show. So, it'll be interesting. I just I just hope. I don't know, because I like both Lashley and McIntyre. I just hope whoever wins in WrestleMania, they continue the program. I don't know how long they continue the program. Their next mega pay-per-view is what? SummerSlam or some shit like that. So, you know, who knows? Is that going to be too long of a chase for whoever loses? Can they come back to this a little bit later on in the summer? And if they do, I mean, what are we going to do with Sheamus? What are we going to do with Braun? What are we going to do with Keith Lee, who's absent because of injury? I mean, what are you going to do with him? So there's a lot of stuff going on. But, yeah, Raw has been absolutely horrendous. But congratulations to um, Bobby Lashley winning the strap. Once again, the last black man to uh, do that, my main man, Kofi Kingston, WrestleMania 2019, over Daniel Bryan. Bryan is barely moving. Oh, no. Come on, Kofi. And he 
Kofi measuring the champion. So there you go. Kofi Kingston. Now, I was extremely upset that Kofi Kingston lost to uh, Brock Lesnar in about four seconds. <laughs> that was for the introduction of SmackDown when it went over to uh, Fox. I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. You're going to treat my man like that. But, um, you know, what are you going to do? It was Lesnar. It was Lesnar. It was Lesnar. So, yeah, man, that is the long line of black heavyweight champions or champions in the WWE, the WWF. So, you know, congratulations once again. I think it's fantastic. It means something for a guy who's watched wrestling over four decades. You know, it's great. I loved it. A guy who grew up loving Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson, Dwayne Johnson's kid. How old am I? Yeah, so, you know, those are my guys. Those are my guys. So, you know, I I, I think it's absolutely fantastic. So, um, looking forward a little bit. I don't know if I'm going to watch it this year or not. I don't know. I don't know. They're going to have to do a, a few more things for me to really get excited about, um, WrestleMania. You got Bobby Lashley defending the WWE Championship against Drew McIntyre. Should be interesting. Sasha Banks defending the Women's SmackDown Women's Championship against, uh, Bianca Belair. That should be interesting. Bianca Belair, by the way, is a superstar in the making. This woman, not only is she gorgeous, not only is she attractive, she can wrestle, she's athletic, she's good on the mic, she's got charisma, she's got personality, she's a superstar. She's a superstar in the making. Let's hope they don't screw this up with her, but the match between her and Sasha Banks is going to be awesome. Roman Reigns defending the Universal Championship against Edge. I absolutely, positively love Roman Reigns' character. Love it. And I like the fact, I've heard him on a, um, I heard him on an interview a little while ago, and of course the thing was like, man, you know, why didn't you change, why didn't you turn heel before, because you were getting booed, and this, that, and the other, and he was like, you know, that wasn't the right time for me to do that, you know, I wasn't ready for it, I wasn't prepared for it, I wasn't experienced enough for it, and the fact that, you know, you put a little swerve into the heel change, because everybody, it's easy to sit there and say, well, yeah, that's the reason why He's turning heel because of the booze and this, that, and the other. That's that's the 92-mile-per-hour fastball straight down the middle to a home run hitter. You know, let's put a little swerve into it. 
for the reason why I turn heels. And it was awesome. He's doing a great job. Looks like he's lost some weight and cut up, cut himself up a little bit, but uh, he's the best thing going right now. Love the fact that Lashley won the championship, but the best thing going right now is Roman Reigns and what he's doing in his new character. So he should beat Edge, who, amazing what he's doing at 47, but he is 47. So Roman Reigns should go ahead and defend his championship there. Charlotte Flair defeating or challenging Asuka for the Raw Women's Championship. Andrade's fiance, Miss Flair, Ashley Flair, Fleer, shall we say. The I think this is going to be a great match in terms of the match itself. The fact that Asuka is limited in her English kind of prevents her becoming the megastar that she should be. She's a beautiful Asian woman, great wrestler. Uh, her and Charlotte Flair are probably technically the best wrestlers in the women's division. I would also put Naomi up there in terms of being able to wrestle in entertainment value. But um, it's going to be a great match. I think Flair is going to uh, win. Don't know if she's going to be coming heel or not. So glad. There was another There was another deal where it's like Raw is just screwing things up beyond dis- description. The whole... Um, Rick Flair impregnated uh, Lacey Evans. Made no sense. Ridiculous. What exactly now is Charlotte Flair with this whole program with the father? And they scrapped that immediately as soon as, for real, Lacey Evans is really pregnant. So obviously the, the angle had to uh, end with that. But it was just another example of WWE Raw coming off the rails in terms of you really want me to watch this shit? You realize that I'm over 15, right? So that should be a pretty good match. Oscar uh, uh, and Charlotte Flair. Possibility of Shane McMahon versus Braun Strowman. We still have to uh, tie up the loose ends of The Fiend versus Randy Orton. Also, I'm going to be interested to see what plans they have for Big E and Seth Rollins and Carmella, Cesaro, Daniel Bryan, AJ Styles. Could we see possibly Brock Lesnar? I don't know. I don't know. But... Get this. Give it up for Vince. Special dedication to Vinnie Mac. My man. Take a look at the current champions. Bobby Lashley, Roman Reigns, Big E at the Intercontinental Champion, Sasha Banks, SmackDown Champ, Asuka, WWE Champ, The Hurt Business, Cedric Alexander and Shelton Benjamin are the Raw Tag Team Championship uh, uh, champions there. I like the fact that they have a lot of minorities. I love the fact that they have a lot of minorities. It's awesome. It's great. And uh, all of those seem correct. No one's getting a free pass here. No one is getting a, uh, you know, um, you know, a participation trophy. I mean, this isn't a missed situation with Bobby Lashley where it's kind of like you are a transition champion. It's not that way with Roman Reigns. It's not that way, I don't think, with Bobby Lashley. Again, as I mentioned before, even as Lashley... Loses, he's going to be losing to a guy, Drew McIntyre, who's beyond legit. And I think that Lashley is going to be a main event guy for the foreseeable future. At 44, Lashley is finally getting the run that he deserved. So win or lose, you know, one of the major players in this billion-dollar business known as the WWF or WWE, I love the fact that we see folks of color being prominent players, regardless of what the stature is. But the fact that... You know, Lashley, champion, black man, Cedric Alexander, Shelton Benjamin, tag team champion, black man, whoever's going to win between Sasha Banks and um, Bianca Belair, black woman holding down the uh, championship belt. 
Asuka, even if she does lose the fact that she's been multiple times champ, an Asian woman for the um, for the um, women's champ over in Raw. Fantastic. Fantastic. That's the way it should be in terms of giving everybody a chance. And, uh, you know, the bigger the rainbow, the more diverse the rainbow, the more diverse the fans that you're going to have. And believe me, Raw ain't stinking. The numbers might be down as far as viewership ratings for Raw. It ain't because of Bobby Lashley. It ain't because of MVP. It ain't because of Selton Benjamin. It ain't because of Cedric Alexander. So it ain't because of Keith Lee. Tell you that much. So, you know, there we go with that. So you got that. My, the AEW, my, really, what I view as uh, te- more television watching, AEW, they're holding their pay-per-view tonight. But, uh, you know, I want to I wanna hurry up and uh, get this done. I haven't really even checked, but. My favorite wrestler of them all, as of right now, is Kenny Omega. My man Kenny Omega is the best. Man, I hope he beats John Moxley. <laughs> Just, uh, I hope they. I don't know what Moxley's going to do because you know he's over there in Japan. He's got dates and. His wife uh, is just either she's pregnant or she delivered already, or I don't know, but soon Moxley's going to be a father, so I don't know about that. But as of right now, the best of the best is uh, Kenny Omega, regardless of Raw, SmackDown, the best wrestler out there, period. For me, is Kenny Omega, and Hangman Page is uh, not too far behind. So those are two of my top three or four favorite wrestlers going right now. And uh, yeah, I just can't say enough about Kenny Omega. That's my man. So, there we go. If you take a look at my uh, favorite wrestlers of all time, thinking about this here, who you got Tony Atlas, as I mentioned before, Tony Atlas, Rocky Johnson. Those are the guys that got me first indoctrinated into watching wrestling. You know, when you're a young guy, there was no cable. There was none of this kind of nonsense. There was no internet or anything like that. So, a young guy, Saturday morning, WDCT, uh, W, what is it, WDCT Channel 20, whatever it was in Washington, D.C., you come down Saturday morning and you watch the wrestling back in the uh, late 70s. The first person that caught my eye was the original Hulk Hogan, which was Tony Atlas in terms of getting his ass kicked and then he pumps up and then he beats somebody. That was Tony Atlas before Hulk Hogan. So my favorite guys were Rocky Johnson, Tony Atlas, two guys that got me introduced to the sport. And from there, it was just like a love affair, man. And you had Tito Santana. And of course, you know, how can you not... When you talk about my favorite wrestlers, favorite wrestlers of all time, how can you not include this man right here? Finally, The Rock has come back to New Jersey. Just as sure as for the very first time, Kevin Kelly, The Rock, stood right in this arena and called you an ugly hermaphrodite. Is as sure as this Sunday night at Armageddon, the Rock will be in hell in a cell. This is going to be the most brutal match The Rock has ever been in. The dangerousest match The Rock has ever been in. The hell in a cell. And it doesn't matter, Kevin Kelly, what you call it. Whether it's called a hell in a cell, a rage in a cage, penis in Uranus, the only thing that matters is that The Rock is going in this Sunday night to do exactly what he does best, lay it to smack it down and get back The Rock's WWE title. And the fact of the matter is this, is that The Rock knows this Sunday night he has his work cut out for him. The Rock knows he's got five other guys he's got to compete with. And even if The Rock has got to beat Kurt Angle, which means 
I'm gonna drink a big glass of milk. Eat some chocolate chip cookies, and then maybe I'll take three Viagra. Or maybe The Rock is gonna face Rikishi. Beat Rikishi. I did it for The Rock. I did it for the people. I did it. I did, oh, shut your mouth, you thong wearing fatty. Or maybe even The Rock has got to beat The Undertaker, the American badass. Beat him so bad that one more time he'll raise up. Rest in peace. Or maybe The Rock has got to beat Triple H himself, which means uh, he's got to beat the game uh, in the middle of the ring. Uh, and he has a $2 s for a wife. Uh. Or maybe The Rock has got a beat. Stone Cold Steve Austin, which means I gotta get in my I gotta get in my pickup truck, drink some Steve Weisers, listen to some Backstreet Boys. And that's the bottom line, cause the great one said so. And one more thing, this Sunday night at Armageddon. The Rock is going to do all he can to win the WWE title. If you smell what The Rock is cooking. One of the best ever, if not the best ever. Yeah, I know, Ric Flair, Ric Flair, Ric Flair, but for me, man, there's The Rock. I mean, Flair's up there, you know, but for me, if you smell what The Rock is cooking, that was the man. The promo he gave before he fought Stone Cold, I believe it was WrestleMania 16. I can't find that anywhere. Legendary. Damn, that was awesome. That was beyond awesome. So, him and Ric Flair, you know, uh, CM Punk, another great guy on the stick. Um, he wasn't a wrestler, but Bobby Heenan, great on the stick. Uh, let me see who else was awesome. Macho Man, of course, good on the stick. Hogan, you know, all those guys. But, you know, back in those days, you had to talk a little bit more or else you had, you know, Slick, Classy Freddie Blassie, Albano, Heenan. Of course, Mr. Fuji didn't speak any. You know, he wasn't good on the stick. You know, but, but still, I mean, but, you know, the guys, you had to really learn how to do your thing. If not, they put you up with a manager. But, yeah, so, you know, The Rock, always been one of my favorites, along with his father and Tony Atlas, Tito Santana, Kurt Angle, Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning, one of my favorite, Bret Hart, my favorite. Of course, we started getting into, like, the nitty-gritty of my all-time greats. Not only was The Rock up there, not only was, God rest his soul, Kurt Henning, Mr. Perfect, absolutely perfect up there, but uh, also... This man, who has flown under the radar recently, I guess in the last couple of years, was finally put into the WWE Hall of Fame. Should have been so much sooner, but one of the greatest heels of my time of watching wrestling in his heyday, and also one of my favorite promos. This guy is so pompous. What I'd like to have right now 
is for all you fat, out of shape, Minnesota meatheads. Keep the noise down while I take my robe off and show the ladies the new Intercontinental Champion and the sexiest man on God's green earth. Hit the music. She agrees with that. What I like to have right now, cut the music. What I want to do right now is for all you fat, sloppy, podcasting pinheads to keep the noise down as I talk about my favorite wrestlers and show you what a real wrestling fan is all about. Hit the music. Of course, if you're talking about fat and out of shape, I'd be, I would be part of that group, so I can't go any further with that. Ravishing Rick Rude. When he died, I had no idea. Now, I wasn't in uh, Henderson. I wasn't in Las Vegas at the time, but I didn't know that he was out here in Henderson. Died in uh, 99, but... Um, yeah, Ravishing Rick Rude. One of the few guys, him and Mr. Henning, one of the few guys I never saw out of character. Now, now it's a lot different because of the expansion of what those guys can do and you have the internet and there's so many other ways for you to uh, improve your brand and make your money that, you know, and plus the curtain is drawn back in terms of what they do. Now it's entertainment and you know, wrestling is talked about differently now. Now people talk about storylines and people are talking about, you know, I like this guy better as a face or a heel and all those type of things. And when Rick Rude was still doing his thing, you know, there was still that ambiguity of where, yeah, we sort of kind of realize that it's fake, but, you know, there's still that we've never seen this guy out of character. And if you don't see him out of character, you kind of go on the assumption that he's more of his character than, uh, you know, than you would probably think. So, but I never saw Rick Rude out of character. He was a family man, always wore his ring down to the, uh, to his uh, matches. You know, his son died in a uh, motorcycle accident uh, a few years ago out there in Georgia, but, you know, no mention of his wife and his kids, but devoted family man and all those type of things. But you never know that for a guy who, uh, you know, that, angle that he had with uh, Jake the Snake Roberts and his wife and the fact that he would, you know, give these long kisses to any of the females in the audience. So, you know, you, you would never know that this guy for real was a dedicated family man, husband and uh, father. But uh, that was Rick Rude, one of my all-time favorites. Um, you know, that body that he had. Interesting. Kids, believe me, ain't no genetics good enough for you to do that, for you to look like that naturally or without killing yourself. So, yeah, just, uh, but Ravishing Rick Rude. So, those are my favorites. So, as I leave today, as I end the podcast today, first of all, I want to say thank you very much for sticking around. So nice. Hope that all of you guys, I hope everybody that's listening to the podcast will do what they need to do to make yourself, to make everybody else, to make anybody you come in contact with a better person. It's not hard. It's not too hard. Just be yourself, be strong, be cognizant of uh, what's around you, and uh, do the best that you can to uh, bring unity, to bring peace, to end discrimination, to end oppression, all of those type of things. So if you do that, I think that, uh, you know, you'll be okay when your time comes. So with all of that being said, I want to end with, without question, one of the most influential people of my young life, being a wrestling fan at the time. When this man 
came on the scene in the mid-80s blew my mind. Unbelievable. But what put it over the edge for me, what made it so that he cemented his legacy in my eyes as my all-time favorite wrestlers. Now, I'm too old to really get into, yeah, he's my all-time favorite wrestler, but you knew this man was going to be my favorite regardless of who came along, what happened when he introduced his manager. And as a 14, 15-year-old boy who saw Miss Elizabeth come walking through the, uh, walking into the ring out from the back, I was like, ball game, this guy's my favorite. This guy is my favorite by far. And then the angle that they had with them and everything, fantastic. Absolutely fa- Don't think that the uh, stuff that they were doing, Macho Man, Randy Savage, and Elizabeth, don't think the stuff that they were doing today, don't think those angles, don't think that whole premise of uh, Macho Man and Elizabeth Hewlett, don't think that would have been good today. Don't think that would have washed today. Don't think that would have been appropriate today. But uh, back in the day, that was so awesome. That was so awesome in terms of funny and this, that, and the other. Now, you get out of here right now. Macho Man Randy Savage was the best. Macho Man Randy Savage was my guy. Fuck all you Hulkamaniacs and all that nonsense. Say your prayers and eat your vitamins. The hell with that stuff. My man, without question, was always, heel or face, was always going to be this guy right here, Macho Man Randy Savage, being interviewed by the legendary, by the great Gene Okerlund. And how about the Savage, Miss Elizabeth, Gene Okerlund, all the folks that, uh, big part of my life in terms of when I was a youngster, teenager, in terms of my wrestling fandom, are no longer with us. Damn. But stuff like this with Savage, Mean Gene, and Miss Elizabeth, priceless. WrestleMania 2 is history, and this man is still the Intercontinental Champion. He's from Sarasota, Florida. What's with the broom? Wait a minute. Sweet what is the... Professional wrestling completely clean. Oh, yeah. Doing the thing, yeah. Like nobody ever does before. Yeah. Tito Santana, it's been a while since I saw you in the Boston Garden. And I think that you believe that even though you're headhunting, that you can't beat the Macho Man Randy Savage. And you know Hulk Hogan? Yeah, if he wants to keep an eye on me, don't look behind you, Hulk Hogan. No, don't look in front. Don't look to the sides. Look straight up, because I'm right on top of you. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, 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 Elizabeth, my dear, how are you? I'm you look fine. gorgeous yeah. as usual. Thank you very much. Well, you're more than welcome. How are things going for you? Oh, great. Everything's super. Yeah, when you get into New York City, you have an opportunity to do a little shopping. Oh, yes. Browsing. I really enjoy that. Unbelievable. Yeah. Excuse me. Just let me interrupt this for a second. I'm what? just standing here. I'm holding a gold belt, the Intercontinental Heavyweight Championship belt. I'm only the champion. You guys got a conversation going. You're talking, talking back about and a few forth. Things. It's like uh, it's like the most important man in the world standing here, and you got a conversation going with each other. Now well, explain to me what. Put that thing down. Don't degrade the champion at any time. A man in my position could never afford to look ridiculous. Do you understand that? Tell Tito Santana that. And tell Hulk Hogan that. And Elizabeth, I think I need to tell you something right now. You don't understand thank, who you're thank you with very right much. now. Do you know who you're with? Thank you very you're much. You're with me. The macho man, Randy Savage. Goodbye. Ah, the greatness. The greatness of Randy Macho Man Savage. Strange guy complicated guy, but
But uh, as I mentioned before, yeah, that 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 stuff wouldn't play today well in the uh, in today's world, which is good. Which is good. I don't. I mean, as a, as a young man, I thought it was hilarious to see Macho Man berate Elizabeth like that, and she just takes it. But yes, I'm I'm I'm, I'm glad that, and rightfully so, that that uh, those days are behind us. That uh, hopefully men understand that treating women like that is not cool, and women taking that stuff from that guy, from a man like that, or any man who is going to berate her like that, is uh, is wrong on every level that there is. Of course, men do it. Women take it. So, but, uh, but you know, we're getting there. We're getting there. Hopefully, black women will understand that, you know, nice guys are available too. You know, get get a little sick and tired of hearing there, there's no good black men. You know, you have to go to jail to find one or you have to go to jail to find a, uh, to find a guy. You got them, you got them around here too. You know, there's, there's some like me who are still single, you know, still single and ready to mingle. But, you know, you'd rather... You know, chase the guys who are bad boys. Okay, fine, fine, wonderful. Just don't talk to me about there's no good black men. Please, just just save it. And also, when these good black men go to another race because we get sick and tired of your asses running after after uh, scumbags and you're up there, so don't 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 come yelling at us and don't go yelling at any other the females that we go after. Just letting you know, just letting you know you've been you've been yelling that shit for I don't know decades. About, you know, white women stealing good black men. No, maybe you might want to look in the mirror and say, eh, you know what? Sometimes the black men just aren't really down with the bullshit that some black women are giving us. Just saying. Just saying. Not all. Not all. Just saying. Just saying. Let me get out of here before I get into any more trouble. That's the reason why you're not married. That's the reason why you're not in a relationship. That's the reason why you don't have any kids because of an attitude like that. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, whatever. Let me get out of here before I get myself in any deeper trouble. Pomp and circumstance in dedication to my favorite, one of my favorites growing up, the macho man, Randy Savage. Ooh, yeah. Peace music.